Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Book 5 Retrospective Recap Extravaganza. How's everyone doing? I didn't write a song for this time. Sorry. Oh, you loser. Look, I have been sick for over a month now with four different ailments, uh, a lot of things on my list to do, and writing a song was one of the things that's still on there. I didn't remember that you wrote a song last time, so I definitely wasn't expecting you to have a song written. I've done a silly little parody every retrospective. Every one? Yeah. Yeah. And then you say, who wrote that? and I, Or who, who sings that? And I say, I do. And you say, you should keep it that way. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> I don't remember. It's been a long time since we've done a retro. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, let's, uh, let's get into it. So book five was all about going to Zopadl, the city of Yolispan. Uh, this, this was a very different book from the rest of Tyrant's Grasp. I think everyone would agree with me. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it felt really short, but in terms of episode count, I mean, it was obviously shorter than book four, but do we have a, do we have a breakdown? Matt, do you know off the top of your head how many episodes book five was? Book five was 30 episodes. Yes. I was like, I actually, I remember I actually broke this down. I don't remember exactly which, uh, what chat it was, but one of the, the chats on Discord, I remember actually broke it down, like exactly how many books, how many episodes each book was for Tyrant's Grasp and for Skull and Shackles. I think it's our third or fourth longest book, right? It's up there. Like our, our Tyrant's Grasp books have been on the whole a little bit longer than our Skull and Shackles books, with the obvious exception of book four of Tyrant's Grasp, which was massive on episode right. count. Yeah. I yeah, I thought 30 was about the new average. Like 25 was the average for Skull and Shackles, and then I I feel like 30 was the average for Tyrant's Grasp with with book 4 being the obvious outlier. Aha, I found it. So, uh book 5 I think ended up about 31 episodes. Book 4 was 45 episodes. Um books 1, 2 and 3 were all right around 25, 26. For Skull and Shackles, we had Book two was 30 episodes. Book four was 26. Book six was 11 because we blazed through that one. Jesus Christ, 11? I knew it was short. I remember being short, but oh my God. Yeah, and books one, three, and five were 21 episodes each. Wow. So tied for the second longest book. It is the second longest. It it, it beat out book two of, of Skull and Shackles by like one episode. Oh, I thought you said one of them in Skull and Shackles was 30. It was, and the book five of TG was like 31. It's It was 30. I just counted it the other night. Oh. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's get into, uh, let's actually, let's start with some questions. Uh, let's start with, uh, start at the top. Salamander, did Teoblith ever think about trying to use Arasni's heart in some way? Um... Well, I Heart think or lungs. I think beyond the mechanical benefit of getting, I think improved iron will from it. I don't think he ever really thought of trying to use it because what he only really 
ever interacted with Arasni on any meaningful level at Rogiar's house. And they had other issues to deal with in that moment. And then it kind of got lost in the shuffle. But I think for the most part, Teolith was definitely holding on to that more as bragging rights than anything else. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as far as using Arasni's lungs, uh, it was, while, while it was an artifact, uh, it was mostly passive in its function. Like, it, it granted some passive bonuses, very good bonuses. Uh, but as far as using it, there were a couple, like, implied, uh, implied, like, not really covered in the rules per se uses that they could be used for eventually. Uh, like, while Teoblith had them, and then later, uh, well, it, Utra didn't get them until book five, but while Teoblith had them, uh, Arasni could just, like, she could just spy on him with, with absolute ease. <laughs> they could have potentially been used in a not really, uh, it's not really covered how it would work or if it would work, but possibility of, like, freeing Arasni from being a lich or, like, you know, bringing her back to life. Like, something that would probably involve getting all of her. Like, she, it's not just her lungs. Like, she's got all these other canopic jars uh, that, you know, she doesn't know where they are, but they exist somewhere of, like, there's, you know, uh, one with her heart in it. There's another one with... Uh, I don't know, maybe her spleen or something. Uh, but, but yeah, like eventually maybe they could have been used to bring her back to life. Uh, but that was, yeah, just like very like vaguely implied as a possibility, like based on if, uh, it was like one of the, one of the possible like questions or something that a PC might have said to a Razney, like, like, Hey, like we want to help you. Uh, like, it was kind of covered vaguely of like based on her response that maybe that was possible. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as using it, there wasn't really anything that major that Teoblith could have done with them. Uh, he was get, he was getting uh greater iron will and the knowledge domain, I think. Oh yeah. I don't think I ever used that power, but yeah. <laughs> uh, let's, do another question here. Josh from Discord. Uh, Sally Mander's question was via Discord also. Uh, Josh from Discord uh, asks, Nessie had more going on than just being a Ravener, right? I'm guessing the gold-plated template. Yes, or, uh, Nessie did have more going on than just being a Ravener, uh, but not all that much. Uh, the gold plating is the like extra thing. Uh, Nessie was a, an ancient black dragon, I believe, uh, turned into a ravener. And then the gold plating, uh, gave Nessie spell penetration and improved spell penetration. Um, and then while wearing golden plating, uh, Nessie's natural attacks count as magic for the purposes of bypassing DR and striking incorporeal creatures. Uh, yeah, uh, dragon lo dragons lose their DR magic, and it becomes DR good. 
But losing DR magic means that your natural attacks no longer count as magic versus DR, which is weird, but it happens. So the gold plating returns that benefit and then also gives him ghost touch. Uh, Nessie treats his sorcerer level as too higher for the purposes of determining spells per day, spells known, and effective level of spell casting, which, like, that's something that the Ravener template already does. I think it increases your caster level in the same way by two. So Nessie's caster level is actually four higher than a normal ancient black dragon. Uh, and then once per week, he can replace one of his spells known with any other spell on the sorcerer's spell list of the same level. Uh, and then the spell penetration, greater spell penetration bonus feats. So, yeah, I mean, obvious obvious uh, buff, but yeah, not, not all that different from a normal ancient black dragon ravener. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure who asked this. Uh, we'll get to it a eventually anyway but uh somebody asked what uh about nessie's name yep that was a casual chaos via discord ah yes i found it so i'm gonna answer that right now uh so nessie aka nessie stravek as written uh the dragon's name was actually Estravek. and so when i was going when i was trying to tie the Loch Ness Monster, into this campaign, what was I thinking? <laughs> um, I eventually realized, like, oh, there's an, uh, an undead black dragon. Black dragons actually look a fair amount like the Loch Ness Monster. Uh, so, fuck it, close enough. <laughs> and so I was like, try, I was like, what's like the least amount I could tweak this name to enable the nickname Nessie? So I just added a, a Ness in front of Easterbeck. It was fun. I actually knew that the dragon's name was Easterbeck. Like, I found this out not too long after Nessie appeared because I've been, I was playing the, uh, the game on Steam called Pathfinder Gallowspire Survivors. It's, uh, it's, oh, Easterbeck is on that? Yeah, Easterbeck is one of the bosses that you fight going through the game. Oh. So, I remember, I remember saying, like, Easterbeck. I was like, Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just a different black dragon ravener. <laughs> Forced into Tarbeth on service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably got a ton of those. All right. So let's let's get into some roundtable discussions. And I don't want to bury the lead too much here, but th- this book, uh, I guess like, like just real quick, because like I like... I wanted to like talk about this more in depth later on, but like, like real quick, like what is, what was everybody's like impression with book five? Like, did you like it? Did you dislike it? How, 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 what vibes were you left with from book five? My big thing with book five is that it felt like that one book in every Paizo AP that seems very out of place. Yeah. Like... Skull and Shackles, it was kind of the Island of Empty Eyes. Like, that one was, like, thematic, but it was just such a different tone than the rest of the AP as a whole. Um, Kingmaker, it was book six, where it was just, like, uh, you know, brief spoilers for Kingmaker here, but nothing too bad. Like, you spend the first five books building up your kingdom, and then book six is like, let's go plane hopping, and it's... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, every book seems to have like a field trip book. Yeah. So this I I like this book. Uh I like Zopodl. But I feel like it was ultimately like a bit of a vanity project. Um like Paizo really wanted to uh get some Mexican uh south of the border sort of flavor uh more incorporated into their lore as they should there's a lot of really cool uh stuff to work with when you're looking at stories from like ancient aztec civilizations uh mexican folklore stuff like that especially with uh, such an undead heavy ap considering how prominent like the dia de los muertos is to latin american culture and especially with Luis Loza, a very talented uh, writer and game developer that Paizo just happens to, you know, have on payroll. Like, it just seemed like a good opportunity to just kind of get a full a full AP's worth of material out there. Uh, it just kind of felt, again, like a, like a little bit of a vanity project. And yeah, it it got a little distracting. I feel like there, like on one hand, I really liked that it was this kind of lull in the story. It was like a chance to breathe, uh, but maybe it was too long of a breather. Yeah, I I could definitely I could see that. Like it felt, it felt like maybe either doing like. The Blue Gardens or Nessie would have been enough time in Zapotle, and then getting back to it would have worked from there. Having both and having both be the entirety of the book seemed a bit much. Yeah, that or like if you're going to thrust the PCs into uh, this strange world that unless unless you have a group of uh, like Latin American players or people who are like very familiar with Latin American culture and the norms of that and everything. Like it's also going to feel unfamiliar to the players and that's fine. But combining both of those things and then also having like maybe the least uh, railroady book of the entire AP. Uh, I think it just kind of felt it, it, it left, it left the group with like a, bit of a feeling of like like what exactly are we supposed to be doing uh because like i don't know on one hand this was like the least survival horror of any of the uh tyrant's grasp ap's on the other hand uh i kind of tried to use that to my advantage and instead of burying like any of the leads in the book I just fucking showed you a roadmap of all of the important people and places that you were going to need to deal with. And then I just kind of let them hang. So you guys could just like know that you were going to go somewhere, know that you were going to have to go kill some guy or some dragon, but like, no, not yet. Don't do it yet. And instead of survival horror, it just kind of turned into a, uh, like kind of like an, a, like a anxious sort of wait for those things to finally happen. Kind of like a, an adventuring blue balls book. 
Yeah, there you go. Um, but I feel like I feel like at the end of that, it instead of like instead of the desired effect, it just kind of created this like, all right, like we're finally here, but I'm over it sort of uh, feeling. And on top of that, it really uh, it gave certain people nothing to talk about but imaginary conspiracies. I guess at the end of the day, I don't regret any of that. Uh, it's all, you know, live and learn. But yeah, it's, it's, it was a weird, it was a weird book, I guess, I guess is my, my final takeaway. Yeah. Uh, anyway, let's go to our first round table and let's talk about our favorite combat. There were a lot fewer combats than any book we've done so far. So I guess our our list is smaller than than average for picking out your favorite. But uh yeah, who wants to go first and talk about their their favorite combat? Um I guess I'll start. I think my favorite just in terms of kind of sheer enjoyment was the uh it was the the fight against just like two basic bitch soldier weirwoods in Yoli's pen that had taken a group of people hostage. And it was one where, like, I was just able to just kind of just kind of give Thalias his like shovel bonus, just give him like a pat on the ass and go go get him, champ, and just watch. That uh, that marked I think like the first combat where Teoblith kind of like became the like silent spectator that he had wanted to be in all of book four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that. <laughs> That's funny that that make that that was your favorite combat, but I guess that that fits. Uh, like you said, there weren't yeah, a ton to choose from, and I feel like Valbar never really got a chance to shine in any of them. So, yeah, besides like like the last handful of combats, that's that's the other thing. Like most of the combats in this book were like pretty easy. Uh, there are obviously some outliers. One where. A whole PC died, but yeah, uh, yeah. I was gonna say Nessie and yeah, that that fight with the golem were like the two tough ones. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and there was one that we probably av- that we avoided that would have been really tough. After that, there were so many that you guys avoided. <laughs> um, I'm yeah, I'm gonna talk about some of those in a little bit. Uh, who wants to go next? Uh, I will. You know, I uh, the one uh, battle that comes to mind is uh what was what was the um guardian creature that was uh outside of the the moss golem the the moss golem um honestly <laughs> i love the aha moment of oh this is what my cards do <laughs> just <laughs> in general <laughs> oh no that was the the incomplete ct middle yeah outside tumaha mountain yeah, outside the pyramid. Okay, sorry, I was talking outside of uh, the Blue Gardens. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. sorry, the, sorry, that the, was my bad. The, the yeah. Say, saying who's the big motherfucker outside the dungeon is not really narrow it down <laughs> yeah, to yeah, Tyrant's yeah. grasp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm definitely going with the Titsumito fight just because of the uh, aha. Oh look, this ability I've had since I char- my character was created that I've never used. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a classic. Uh, myself yeah <laughs> yep for sure nick you got a favorite combat 
I think I'm going to go with uh, the fight in the basement of the Blue Gardens where Tia Blith got his heart ripped out, but then was like, fuck you, now I'm going to blow you apart with your own <laughs> cannon toy. Yes. I kind of forgot about that, like, because, like, Tia Blith died in, like, a spectacular fashion, <laughs> but, like, yeah, there's that whole, like, yes and aspect of Tia Blith's death. Such a weird thing. We we had a golem for a minute. Yeah, that was that was really cool. Um, possibly one of the coolest character farewells we've ever had. Probably the most Just badass. How weird it was. How much like age like agency Matt actually had over it. Like, yeah. Despite the fact that he was most definitely dead. Yeah, that was uh. That was what I was going to bring up as my favorite character moment was like the one time I've ever, I think, even seen a character get to like say goodbye before dying because of the way the game works. Generally speaking, like when a character dies, it's sudden. So you don't have that opportunity for like that <gasps> goodbye moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was very, very cool. Um, so. I'm there there's there's a combat I want to talk about for favorite combats but it didn't actually happen. Uh so my my first answer is going to be the Moss Golem fight. <laughs> it was a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of space for people to move around. The Moss Golem was instantly and obviously like a very scary opponent. Um but like all of a sudden, like, oh, Tealith has control over it. And then, like, very next turn, like, oh, no, now he doesn't. Uh, and then, like, nobody ever killed the Moss Golem. Like, it just eventually he was just like, well, my targets are either invisible or out of my reach. And I'm just kind of bored now. And it just went back into its little, uh, its little greenhouse and went like, oh, maybe they'll forget about me and I'll get another swing at him. But. Oh, there's something about that fight was charming to me. Yeah, so here, here's there. There are a lot of combats that got skipped in this book. Um, there's, I and I feel like some of them are just kind of like, duh. Like, why'd you even bother, like, wasting the page space for this encounter at this level? Because like, once the PCs arrive in Zopodal in the forest, they look around. And there's really nowhere to go. Like there's there's nowhere obvious like of where they should go except there's a city in the distance over there. You can just barely see it. Uh, so obviously go in that direction. Uh, if the PCs decided to do that on foot, then they would have had an encounter with like two or three like enormous crocodiles, which would have given Richter so much joy. So <laughs> I hope you guys are happy with yourselves. Uh, but like, there's so many options for traveling by the time we get into book five. Like if you fly, crocodiles can't reach you. If you teleport, crocodiles can't reach you. Like, and I think you guys just teleported. Yeah. You're just like, oh, just went, oh, there's a city oh, over there. The city. Let's go. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, it's really far away. Let's not walk. Like we don't know where we are. Let's teleport. So there's the combat was just gone. Like and I was I wasn't even I wasn't even mad. I was just like, yeah, obviously they were never gonna fight those crocodiles. 
Um, now I want to talk about the Blue Gardens of Talil. Uh, and not for the reason that you guys might think. Uh, so there was, uh, there, there was some RP that happened once we got to the Blue Gardens of Talil. And the PCs were kind of told, like, hey, a lot of the people at that research facility are just kind of doing what they think is the right thing. Uh, many people are very desperate to get the, the, the veins of creation back up again. And it's gotten to the point where a lot of people are like, Hey, yeah, let's, let's work with like some really weird fucked up experiments to like, see if there's an Avenue that we haven't discovered yet. And other, like a lot of other people like Mary, you know, were like, uh, no, that I don't want to, I don't want to go down a dark path like that to try to save something that's going to make us lose ourselves in the process. Um, and Umbarno obviously was like the ringleader of that. And he was the most dedicated to doing whatever it takes. A lot of these people, a lot of these scientists and guards though, were just kind of like along for the ride and not necessarily like cultists or zealots in this. And so obviously there was a non violent method to getting out of most, if not all of the combats there. Obviously, you guys were going to talk your way out of fighting Paldurain, uh, but pretty much everybody else had some sort of uh, like skill check or something to not fight. Um, we never did that, uh, and you know that's fine. Yeah, that was the one thing um, that I was actually kind of surprised by. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not saying that we were out of character or anything like that. It just seemed weird because it almost seemed like we were killing a bunch of like innocent beings. Yeah, I mean that's because you were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they they were they were rude. They didn't want you guys there, but like at the same time they weren't like you know kill intruders on site or anything. Uh, and you know obviously like we've already discussed this ad nauseum. Uh, you know, your, your characters were at a point in their, uh, in their journey where it, it has behooved them to shoot now, ask questions later before, you know, a thing pretending to be benign rears up and tries to kill you. I mean, we didn't even kill everybody in the blue gardens. Right. You didn't. And that's what I'm leading up to because now as the blue gardens is written, it's filled with scientists and guards who are just doing their thing. They are very focused on their work and they just kind of take breaks to eat and sleep. And besides that, they just stay in their stations and they, you know, do their thing. If the alarms go off, like they, they might be like a bit more twitchy or leery if somebody interrupts them, but otherwise like almost none of the, uh, groups of NPCs are going to be like, what's that alarm? I need to go check that out. Like they're mostly just kind of like, will someone turn that alarm off? I'm trying to work. Um, it's like when a fire alarm goes off at your job, you're like, oh, now I got to walk outside and stand there for five <laughs> minutes while there's nothing happening. Yep. Ah, shit. Like, am I going to get in trouble if I walk to my desk in my coat first? Um, so now, now that's how it's written. And the book kind of 
is written with the assumption that maybe the PCs talk to these people and convince them to go home. Maybe they don't and they fight them and they kill them. Uh, now, you guys got into uh, the the fight outside, which was the Werewoods. The Werewoods were kind of an odd uh, an odd factor in there because they, they weren't really scientists. They weren't really guards. Um, they were kind of... Uh, treated as like secondary staff, um, not quite servants, but like just not really respected like the same way that the guards and the uh, scientists were. And even though like they can't be mind controlled because they're werewolves, that's like their whole thing. Um, th- being grown there and in like the way that they were, they were predisposed to uh, like favoring Umbarno. So they were more like his like personal police force. So they more than anybody else would have been like host- more hostile towards you initially. So you guys get in the fight outside. That kind of sort of bleeds into the fight inside. Like the one werewolf goes in. Uh, he alerts like the first group of scientists and guards that he can find. And they're just like, oh, there's an intruder. All right, well, let's, let's head him off. You guys fight those people. And then, like, a minute goes by, another group of guards shows up, you fight them. One guard was left alive. And the characters decided that the best course of action was hide all the bodies in a closet, in an empty lab, but make sure you put the living guard with the corpses under the corpses. Yeah, but that was tongue-in-cheek, my guy. That was like us, the players, being like, haha, funny. It felt more like, I'm going to say this like it's a joke, but also gauge everyone else's reaction, and if everyone's cool with it, it's going to happen. I disagree. I don't think it felt like that at all. Like, I bet you if you go back and listen to the recordings, I'm not even using Uhtred voice when I'm saying that stuff. Regardless of if he was buried under the corpses or not, he was, that's, like, that closet was where he was left. Um, he eventually woke up. Uh, he was just knocked unconscious with non-lethal damage, but yeah, so he, he wakes up, freaks out. He sees the corpses of his coworkers, uh, and goes and tells everyone like the alarm's still going off. He's like, there's actual people in, in infiltrating the blue gardens of Talil. Uh, they killed, you know, Billy and Sarah and, uh, Ned, uh, I don't know where they are. So now everybody is like, oh shit, like we need to actually be on high alert for these people. Meanwhile, the PCs were in the basement where it is locked and you can't get to without a special key that is hidden upstairs. Um, and Umbarno specifically says nobody's to bother me in the basement. So nobody thinks to go down there. The PCs come back up the next day, uh, and Meanwhile, the staff had, like, worked out this plan. Like, we don't know where these people are, if they're still here, if they're long gone. If they're long gone, good riddance. Um, If they're still here, we need to make sure that, like, we can defend ourselves. Um, Now, luckily, the PCs read, like, the mall map for the Blue Gardens of Talil in the Nexus room. And they're like, oh, the room that we want to go to is right here. Here's a direct path to it. We can go there, get what we need, and then we leave. And that's what happened. And they didn't encounter anybody else. But if they had, there was upwards 
of like a dozen NPCs. Oh, that would have been one hell of a fight. They were all like the guards and the spellcasters that you guys fought that were like trip crazy and chain lightning crazy. Uh, and as soon as one of them spotted you, like assuming it was a, a caster, and I think there were more casters than guards, like immediate, immediately Dimension Door to another group of NPCs goes, intruders are here, this is where they are, spread the word. And just like boom, 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 everybody starts alerting everybody. And obviously I wasn't going to have a dozen really powerful NPCs come at you guys all at once, but it would have been this multi-wave combat of these really powerful spellcasters and brawlers coming at you guys for like probably like three or four waves worth. And you guys had just leveled up, so I was pretty confident that you guys would have been okay, but I was like kind of hoping that that would happen. Uh, I mean, from a from a PC perspective, uh, I will say like... <laughs> I get where you're coming from, Nick, but from my point of view, it was like, we visited that closet multiple times. It it was canon at that point that we did bury a, a living person at the, uh, uh, at the bottom it, of a pile there. Like, extra, like, oh, let's put the knife in his hand, like, write the note, like, that wasn't really role-playing, that was out of game just us being us around the table but then to try and take that extra stuff and apply it in game to like the characters themselves i just disagree with yeah either way the fact that the guy woke up in a closet full of his dead friends was more than enough to justify the reaction that that alex was talking about well i disagree that's all I'm saying. I I don't I don't see it that way. What should his reaction have been then? I, I no, I don't disagree with his reaction of like alerting people. Oh, okay. I and I imagine like the people that we left in the um like bedroom probably came out and were the ones that found him. Like I just was saying like some of that stuff was uh, like in that encounter was an out of game thing. Versus an in-game thing, and it feels like it kind of got mixed. I mean, you're right about that. Like, if if you didn't actually intend for that to be, like, canon, uh, like, I didn't realize that. And I think the reason I didn't realize that is because, like, leading up to that, it was like, I was like, all right, guys, like, who's ready for some, like, compassionate role-playing? Like, we haven't gotten a chance to do that yet this campaign. You're like... Like, not not you specifically, but, like, as a group, you're like, we kill them all. Yes, we kill them all. I'm like, oh, I mean, these guys aren't, like, like hostile or anything. You're like, yeah, no, 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 no. Like, we, we, you don't understand. Like, we kill them all. Like, and I'm like, oh, all right, yeah. Like, like yeah, like, like look, we're, we're, we are numb and cold at this point. We kill them all. And then, like, after the fact, you're like, we hide the bodies in the closet. And we leave the survivor under the bodies. I'm just like, all right, we might might as well. Like it just kind of it kind of tracked with like how that entire se- sequence of events had gone up to that point. But like, if that's not if like if you didn't mean for that to happen, like yeah, like that's that's my bad. I didn't I didn't realize that. But that's yeah, that's like that was my train of thought. Let's jump back to another question. Uh, uh, Povo, 
asks from Discord, was Nessie fun because of the challenge or just extremely frustrating? I'm genuinely eager to hear everybody's uh, response to that. I found very little fun in that combat. Yeah, I it was mostly an exercise in frustration for me, but I think that had a lot more to do with a lot of the extraneous factors that went into it. Um, like my character not being able to fly at first and then getting, what did I get, like exhausted from a crit failure like right away. So it was like I had just about nothing I could do other than kind of stand there and hope for a nat 20 and wait for Randolph to get in some some good shots on it. Or Thalias. Yeah. I think my issue with that uh, that combat was, and I think you said this, Alex, at some point through our years of gaming, that it's never more frustrating when PCs can't hit things. So like it's better to write encounters with like heavy hit points or can take a lot of shots versus na 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 you can't touch me. Yeah. And and that combat felt like we can't touch this guy. Yeah, uh, that's that's a that's a perfect uh perfect way to put it. Uh if if the fight took the same number of attack rolls but you hit most of them and I just added hit points, it probably would have been an extremely fun encounter. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that because then it would seem more like an actual like back and forth instead of just us like struggling, like scraping this gold plating uselessly. From a narrative side of it, uh, which as the GM, I feel like that's usually... That's all. That's always a a part of it for me. Uh, I really liked that you guys almost literally couldn't hit Nessie. Uh, it was like out of nowhere, uh, and just the difficulty spike was like insane. Um, Zeno is asking on Discord what Nessie's AC was in the book, as written. Nessie's AC is forty one, and I didn't change it at all. Like the last fight you guys had before that was the Tsitsi Meedle. Incomplete Tsitsi Meedle, CR 17. Nessie was CR uh, 18. So one CR higher than the Tsitsi Meedle outside. Nessie's AC was 41. Incomplete Tsitsi Meedle, 32. So like, obviously there's more factors than just AC when it comes to scaling CR. But like, 32 is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty fair AC for PCs of your level to be swinging for. Um, like maybe like high 30s is starting to get like challenging, but to like just jump to 41, it was like kind of crazy. I, I think a, a more talented GM might have even like on the fly once they realize that, uh, that this was going to be a whiff fest might have been able to whip up an imaginary I, I don't think that's a a fair assessment though of like a more talented GM like and I think you did try and do that too like on the fly in the middle of the combat like I did like uh I kinda like added the like the Deus Ex Machina 
uh, Randolph buff for everybody. And there's not really a way you could have done that that like people wouldn't understand what was going on, right? It's like I'm clearly trying to put a quick band aid on this. Like I'd rather have a band aid than nothing. Yeah, like well, what I was getting at was uh, like the thing that you said where. Maybe if I had dropped Nessie's AC and just like given him like a big extra bag of hit points, it would have it would have changed like the whole dynamic of the fight. Um, in terms of balancing, like how do you how do you figure out how to like how many hit points should you add per AC that you drop? Like it's like that that that's all I really meant by like a more talented GM, like just someone who could like kind of do that juggle on the fly like it's it's doable but that's really not something that i'd be able to uh just kind of be able to do at the drop of a hat i don't know that feels like a big ass without getting actual numbers to be able to do it like did you know what uchard's max hit ability was i'll be impressed if you do because i'm not sure i know without looking joe do you have a favorite combat you want to talk about or should we you should come back move on to the next category come back to you all right he's still getting his bearings <laughs> joe joe isn't joe isn't feeling well so he's uh he's, he's having his us. michael jordan sick game <laughs> yeah. Did anybody have any other thoughts on on nessie uh fun or frustrating uh i think i I'm not trying to think if i like got all of my thoughts out on that i really liked that it was this unexpectedly insurmountable fight it was definitely a big like step up in difficulty from not only what we had faced before but especially what we had faced in this book yes i will say like once um i think uh uh once joe started hitting and once i kind of figured out my spell book towards this thing yeah there, there was a bit uh, that, of a mix-up where tom thought uh <laughs> that it was immune to fire. That's why he wasn't using most of his like damaging spells. And even the um, what was it? Oh yeah, the kimono. But um, even the uh, not the decapitation, the disintegrate spell. Yep. Um, that I I thought was necromancy, and I was just like, oh, stay away from that. And then as it turns out, nope, that was not necromancy, and I was. Right. Yeah, that was like our one big failing when fighting Nessie was not adequately targeting its touch AC. Like everything we were trying to do was going either against just its regular AC or its flat-footed, and those were both ridiculously high numbers. Like we never really exploited the fact that his touch AC was like a twelve. Actually, now that you mention it, uh, I'm already I already told you what uh, Nessie's full AC is. Uh, Nessie's so Nessie's AC is forty one, Nessie's flat footed AC is forty one, and Nessie's touch AC is eleven. Yeah, between size penalties and not having any decks and all of that. <laughs> so yeah, definitely. Uh, any any group that could reliably, uh, like dump trucks on touch AC would have definitely had an edge against Nessie. Uh, I, I hesitate to say that if you guys, like, if one person was able to reliably hit touch AC, then you'd have been fine, because, like, all that would have done is make Nessie go, oh, I should kill you first, and then just right. <laughs> unload. Because that was, that was the other thing that made that fight so hard, is Nessie 
Nessie came to play. Uh, yeah. He, yeah. He, he had plus 34 to hit on his bite and claws, plus 32 on his tail slap and wings. And yeah, and his, his attacks were insanely strong. Bite was 2d8 plus 19. Like it goes down from there, but like not by a lot. And then that the breath weapon, like you guys, you guys were well prepared against the acid. Like you did a good job with that. Uh, but even then, like the breath weapon was still reliably dealing like thirty damage to you guys, even after resistances. And then you've got the negative level or two negative levels that you've got to deal with on top of that. Uh, it was just it was a scary fight, and you guys hadn't really had any scary fights in book five. So it, it kind of felt like they just book five was just like, I'm going to take all of the scariness that I've been spreading out over the past books and just put it into one guy. And yeah, it, from a gameplay perspective, made it frustrating from narrative perspective. I thought it was rad as hell. Uh, but yeah, if, if I was able to comfortably, kind of make that adjustment of lower AC, higher hit points. Uh, I think that would have gone a long way to making it rad as hell gameplay wise too. Um, let's do another question. Josh on discord has another question. Uh, after several of the fights in book five were set to easy mode and several from previous books due to crit card effects, have you guys considered only doing crit cards on natural 20s? That way they kind of still feel special, but don't trivialize every other combat. Well, I'm a little confused, because I don't remember a single fight in Book 4 that got set on easy mode. And the only two that I can really think of in Book 5 was that like giant boar in the um, that was like rampaging through the city, and... The guy that we fought in Timbaha Mountain, like, the night we were resting after Nessie. So, I don't really feel like the crit cards have put in, like, those are the only two combats I can even remember that them making it easy mode. I had kind of been thinking about this one, too, and I think I am, I'm more concerned about how badly a crit fumble, like, ruins your entire day than the crit cards being too strong of an effect because for the most part the crit cards are adding fairly minor stuff like especially that most of them are undead yeah like yeah. <laughs> the yeah. fact that we're facing a lot of stuff that is immune to most of these effects is a big part of it but i don't know other than the occasional decapitate or, you know, severed spine. Which has only happened against PCs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, outside of that, like, I don't know. It, it feels like the crit effects very rarely turn the tide of combat. Like you said, there's been a couple where they do just kind of end the fight right there. But for the most part, I know I already mentioned in the Nessie fight, um, there were two. Like Uhtred dropped his scimitar, like it was a it was a crit yep. fail so bad his locked gauntlet dropped his scimitar, and then the one that Valbar got that made him exhausted. So like those those were much more 
debilitating than I think we ever get a benefit from the actual critical hits. That and you know now that we're level 15 16 now that we're in book six because we leveled up at the end like those critical failure cards are really really difficult to avoid now because the dc is set at whatever the ac we're trying to hit for the crit fumble so like in the case of nessie that's attempting like a dc 40 will save or reflex save to try and do something which is functionally an auto failure and I suppose it works both ways, too, because then when we get a critical hit effect and Uhtred's got his ridiculous, like, plus 17 to crit confirmation or whatever, there are, you know, the enemies are also getting a, a like, DC 17 save or DC 40 something save to, to try and resist some of these. But to Tom's point, we're fighting a lot of undead things, so, like, don't have to make fort saves, like, can't take the ability, like, all those stuff so it does feel like the crit fumbles are like really devastating because the crits are not really that devastating but every one of those fumbles is like you're about to have a terrible day yeah i remember it it could almost reasonably be placed on a crit fumble as the reason why randolph died in book four because teobleth crit fumbled and like severed his bowstring had to spend an entire round restringing it and i'm not sure if he would have been able to take down that thing in that time but it definitely gave it more time to just wail on randolph and take him down so uh alex had to step away he's putting his uh his daughters to bed so we're going to move on to another question uh this one's from casual chaos and this is for joe so you're getting put on the spot here joe but joe how do you think your stat card for book five is going to look? And what do you plan to do to improve it for book six? All right. First, what's a stat card? Uh, like your, uh, I assume like your, your stats, your, you know, your hit rate and your, your damage output and everything else. Yes. Okay. Um, I feel pretty good, except this Hierophant business seems like I should be doing that instead of, <laughs> instead of what I've been doing do you think you're likely to i don't know i really really like bashing people with a shovel like <laughs> really i mean you can still do that as the hierophant yeah no i know he hasn't done but it yet like, so uh, he doesn't really believe he can still do that yeah it's like um i know i can do it but then it's like i'm the hierophant and like people are dying around me so maybe i should do that instead because you, your action economy, right? I mean, you only get to do a certain number of things per round. I don't know. I want to play the Hierophant more because it's like so powerful with the new uh, six level spell, and then the, all the healing and all the other utility, and I can still be, you know, not full power in the attack department, but like pretty close. But it's just oh, it's full attacking with the shovel when you're hasted, when you're inspired, when you're got tricks planted in you. It's just it, like when you really pile all that on to get when you're enlarged, when you're, you know what I mean? It's like it gets crazy at our level now. It's so hard to be like, oh, I, I don't want that. I want to do 70% of that. Or it's like, no, I want all of it. <laughs> 
So that 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 all that struggle really is a real mental struggle every you know morning when I wake up uh, as Randolph like I don't know I think we're gonna keep shoveling people in the face most of the time I I don't know <laughs> uh, well at least he's honest let's move on to another roundtable discussion um, unless Joe had a favorite combat he wanted to touch on before we did so i i gotta think about that i wish i heard all your guys favorite comments to know where we've been with all this um my mine was the moss golem uh tom's was the tzitzi meetle because he finally started using his hero cards Uh, (laughs) nix was umbarno i believe yeah where teoboth died and mine was oh yes uh, that was fun Mine was like the fight against the two basic bitch weirwood guards where he just kind of like enhanced your shovel, gave you a smack on the ass and said, go get him, champ. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the one where uh, Thalias trucked so hard I had to put that uh, Vegeta clip from Team Four Star. <laughs> I like the, dude, um, the kimono thing was was one of my favorite like instances in a cop like when that happened i thought that we had a big bad in a sack and we were gonna you know i was gonna just unload and like crush this big bad and have like a victory lap and everything was gonna be so gravy and that's not how it went at all (laughs) at all I thought at the end of that session, I was like, we're all dead. Now we've fucking done it. Like, it's over. <laughs> so I it was like my highest high of optimism and then my lowest low of thinking that it's all over. So that's actually, uh, so we already talked about like, like Nessie, like frustrating or fun. Uh, everything else about Nessie aside, like what is everybody's thoughts on the... Not the kimono in general, but that specific use of the kimono. Worth it or not worth it? I love it. I wish everyone was trapped in a kimono and then when they came out, we got to beat them to death, for lack of better words. Yeah, that was definitely the right call on Nick's end. It was just (laughs) a very unfortunate uh, 16 rounds (laughs) later Where it had no business to do that. No. It was definitely the right call for Nick to to use that. There there are a couple other points in the fight where it also would have been a good time to use, but like Yes, that was like, yeah. He it it there was no flawed logic to Nick using the kimono when he did. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like in hindsight, there may have been a better a more opportune moment to use it, but like I absolutely cannot fault him for using it when he did, just as a way to reset ourselves and be like <gasps> Oh, this is this will be tougher than we thought. <laughs> yeah, and like that was just the worst rolling on my part that like turned it into that. But like, there's like a real possibility, depending on what you guys are up against, where you're like, oh shit, oh shit, we need a a reset. Like, Komodo activate. But like on my end, I'm like, oh, this guy's got like a negative one in intelligence. He cannot escape the maze. And you guys are going to be waiting for the next 10 minutes. That's what I don't understand about the kimono is like, I'm going to put you in jail 
but I don't have the key to let you out of jail. It just seems weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I feel like that's the balancing to the fact that there's no save to it. Yeah. Like it's just not, it's not a dismissible effect. Like you, you, you put them there. There's nothing you can do about that as long as you pass the spell resistance. But then it's just kind of a matter of the roles of when that's going to happen. Uh, like, and I don't want to like scare you from ever using it again. Like, I don't think no, I'm not. there, I don't think there's a lot of like extra powerful baddies that you're going to want to use it on who have a negative in intelligence. But like, yeah, it's like, it's, that's a possibility that could happen. Like, that's kind of like what makes that item like on the surface. It's like, this is a foolproof, like no regrets ever item. How could I possibly go wrong? And then, like, you look at it and you're like, oh, there's actually, like, this could just become, like, a bad time. And not like, oh, no, like, everything everything went wrong. Like, like we, we lose, like, TPK because, you know, the kimono went wrong. Like, the worst thing that's going to happen is you guys just run out of clock, which is mostly just going to be an inconvenience for you guys. But I guess the the, the possibility uh being present that the kimono could take you guys out of combat for 10 minutes just because the person you trapped in there is too stupid to find his way out is like <laughs> wild <laughs> yeah that was yeah, it was just so damn funny too like the stakes could not be higher and then like ha- normally when that's the case there's not this level of absurdity and humor normally it's like all right like let's get this done it was just fucking wild man like that whole thing it's just completely unexpected, hilarious, and then all of that wrapped around, are we going to die? <laughs> okay, so let's move on to funniest moment. Who's got a f- uh, favorite funny moment they want to talk about? Um, I have two off the top of my head, but I have a feeling someone else will pick one, so I'll go with the other. And it's going to have to definitely be when I first took control of the moss golem because i could just hear the disappointment and the salt in alex's voice when i did it and it it just tickled me so much that was awesome (laughs) happy to help um along that same vein and a little different was uh when i took control of the cannon golem um that obviously had a much different outcome but like just umbarno's just sheer like what the fuck is this <laughs> and then being able uh-huh. to like almost kill him with his own golem despite the other outcome that was it was a really funny moment yeah i'm, I'm a big fan of you uh taking control of alex's toys and then uh the ensuing <laughs> craziness that comes from it uh, you can't really call it a moment but i think our genus is nine to five just it all of that was really funny it was it was definitely left field and what the fuck but like at the same time it's like he's got the weight of trying to for all intents and purposes save the world but he, god damn it he's got to show up for work the next day like yeah that that's definitely like it's like we, we i i made the comparison like in like at the time but it's literally like the Avengers are like, time to go kill Thanos, and Captain America's like, wait, hold on, I, I, I gotta go work my shift at Starbucks. 
I can't, I can't be late again. <laughs> and it's just like, what, like, what are you, like, how could you possibly find that more important than the shit that we have to do? Uh, easy. Uh, that, that, that specific NPC was, uh, was our genius's lifeline to like the real world, right? Like what he's going to go back to when he's done with this. That was the original plan. Once again, just set up a normal life and be on his way. Uh, but he no longer has that ability. Why not? He could greater kitchen point port back to uh, Vorsente anytime he wants. Greater kitchen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it. That, um, that brings up my favorite point is uh, <laughs> Alex setting up a, like a, the Rick and Morty scene. You asshole. <laughs> Fuck that, you. That was my other choice for funniest moment, but I figured someone else would pick that. <laughs> I'm going to be very honest about this. I did not remember the fact that you put a punishment in there. I didn't even know that you put a, like, that you were going to say, like, one of these times it's going to get you. And I was like, all right. Like, I, I took that as, like, just an offhand comment. Turns out. <laughs> I think he was baking Rina, on that. Yeah. No, man. <laughs> Although rarely go ahead. Sorry, I I do have a question. And this is yeah. this was on my mind. What legal source did you use to make that happen? Uh well, teleport trap, I believe is from Inner Sea Magic. And then the look at this asshole was just a magic mouth spell, which I think is a core rule book spell. Uh and than just, I didn't bother looking up a specific spell, but just generic pyrotechnics for the, like the fireworks, and then like, like I think just like a, like greater illusion, some sort of illusion spell for the like like the trumpets and shit, and then all of that was just kind of like, kind of like locked and loaded with a uh, <laughs> contingency spell. Yeah, like I don't think it would be like the contingency spell, but like some sort of like. Oh, the, I think it's. I think it was programmed illusion or something like that, where you kind of like just set the circumstances for like when, when this like illusion begins, and like the magic mouth, you like program like when does the mouth activate and what does it say, and then from there it was just like the fireworks and shit, and like the trumpets was like the programmed illusion. Uh, so I mean, yeah, it it was all all by the books, Tom. I promise. Uh, sure. Yeah, that said, rarely do I find myself actively plotting some petty <laughs> comeuppance for a PC, but I mean, I, I made that warning as Mariana, and then at some point after that session, I was like, all right, well, what she said it, what's she going to do? It was just so well-deserved, too. Also, him <laughs> bringing Rogyar into it, too, it's like, he's just an agent of chaos where, <laughs> like, you're you're in Arginus's path, and, like, he's gonna just do Arginus. He's gonna pop up into your Even kitchen. if you're not in Arginus's path. <laughs> yeah, he's he could be so damage. out. You could be tracking his movements and be like, all right, I'm out of the way. Like, no. He... <laughs> I do have. That's what you think. I do have one quick second one that I uh, that I would like you to kind of spiral into a little bit. Um, the alchemist 
land that you can only get into accidentally. That was mine. That was going to be my moment that I was going to talk about. So I'm happy to spiral into it. (laughs) I I really was curious about this one because (laughs) I just find it funny. Like me as the person, I would have been genuinely excited. But like I could totally just see an RG just, God damn it, wrong place. And So what made it so good for me is how like miraculously quickly and fluidly I was able to kind of get all those pieces to fall into place. Cause initially it was just like, uh, it wasn't our genus failing at teleporting. It was Thalias. He was like, I'll get us there. I'll get us there. Teleport. Oh, I got like a 97. That's really good. Right guys. And everyone's like, uh, no, that's you want low. Like, all right, well I'll try. I'll try again. Try again. Oh, 98. <laughs> wow, what are the fucking odds? Yeah, that was super uncool of you. Imagine succeeding that hard on a D100 and getting punished for it. Like, what? <laughs> I know. That is, it is weird. Usually with D, with D% percent rolls, it's almost always the higher the roll, the better the outcome for the roller. For some reason, teleport flips that on its head. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, then our genus is like, I got this greater teleport auto success and like kind of like meanwhile in the background, I'm like going through the gazetteer of Zopodil, like looking up like, like where's like, I, we, it could have just been like, all right, you accidentally teleport to random semi-related places. And then you wind up at Tumbaha mountain or blue gardens until I don't remember which place you were trying to get to at the time. That was Tumbaha mountain, uh, I believe. Okay. Um, but yeah, it could have just been like, all right, like we don't need to define what happens exactly. But like, I was like, mate, like, let's just see, let's just see if there's a, a, if there's a place that works, uh, two places that work. And yeah, like the first place was like, literally it was another giant tree. Like it, it was like covered in like peacock eyes, like, like the eye patterns on like peacock tail feather feathers. Um, and I don't really remember what like the lore was behind it, but like that was the location. It was just like, like the, the featured thing was this gigantic tree with eyes. I was like, well, that's a no brainer. Like that, if, if there's a a similar, if different place that they go to where they were trying to get to the Kumaru tree, it's this other giant mystical tree, tree of the thousand eyes. This towering tree rises far above the other treetops of Yoli's pond forest and is marked with countless eyes resembling a peafowl's spots. The Elise Pani locals believe this tree grew from the heart of the Chaikome Quaddle that birthed the forest as it died. Legends say that the Quaddle's heart remains intact in the tree's center and that it could be made to beat once more, bringing the Quaddle back to life. Now that's strange because I'm pretty sure in another part of the book it says that uh, a Quaddle, like the, the piece of the uh the earthfall rock that created the kumaru tree hit a coaddle on its way down and the two became or like created the kumaru tree but now this right here is saying the same thing created a different tree that's weird but whatever that's what the book says uh but yeah then i was just like what are the odds that there's going to be a second giant tree location in here uh and there wasn't but then, like, I just ran, like, I'm just scrolling, 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 randomly find, like, oh, Hidden Lake, what is that? Uh, and the, it's, it just says, the city of Hidden Lake is a curiosity as one 
can only visit when they are not wishing to do so. The magic of the surrounding forest of thieves causes anyone traveling through it to find their way out of the forest in the span of an hour. Only an explorer who clears their mind and chooses to get lost within the woods has a chance of locating the city. The city is home to many great alchemists who use the forest magical plants to create especially potent concoctions. Um, so not really like thematically similar, but it's in a forest. So, all right. Uh, and yeah, so I just, I just miraculously like locked those two places in as like, as we're going through the roles in real time and just being able to like, all right, and now let's bring it all together. And it's just like, Teleport. Oh, giant tree with eyes. Gross. Teleport. Oh, welcome to the promised land. Your all your problems are solved. Please stay and be merry, and like we'll we'll all just totally zen out and enjoy alchemical secrets together. Let's and get out Arginus of here. Is, yeah, Arginus <laughs> is like, I'll take it from here. Teleport. <laughs> uh, it was it was amazing. Yeah. Any other uh, funny moments, dude? When. Uh... Matt was uh, trying to save those people from the tree. <laughs> I forget exactly what happened. I was laughing my balls off that whole time. So it's like we're fighting Nessie, right? And the stakes are the highest they've been. And like you want to help the poor bastards who are, you know, in trouble or whatever. But I'm fighting for my life. And then like there was like no good came of that. I mean, we saved one of them, right? But like... It was just hilarious. The role play you injected into that. Yeah. Well, uh, it was the, just the re- perfect. <laughs> yeah. And like the reason I was doing that was because Valbar at that point couldn't fly and you guys were fighting Nessie like 40 feet up in the air. Yeah. So like, it- I'm just like looking up like, well, fuck. <laughs> oh, look, someone I can untie. <laughs> the whole scene. Yeah, exactly. Like it was just painted so perfect. It was, it was like, what if you were watching a Spider-Man movie or something? And then like this other wild thing happens it's just so cinematically out of place but like totally in place i don't know how to describe it really but well it's like actually that's a perfect example because it's like watching like like a like spider-man movie like mcu spider-man like spider-man's like fighting mysterio and he's dodging all these drones and everything (laughs) cut to happy hogan being like come with me kids i know spider-man like you work for spider-man i don't work for spider-man i know spider-man come on let's go and it's just like this (laughs) unrelated hilarious thing happening that like has no stakes whatsoever and it's but it's like this other hero is just doing his best trying to save the kids yeah (laughs) <laughs> I, I just thought that, yeah, that was just so perfect. It tickled me so so much that the stakes could not be higher, and then this random fucking bullshit's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the fact he's like, all right, I'm going to try to untie this guy from the tree. Natural one. All right. Um, Sorry, you I'm tighten gonna... it. Oh, stop. <laughs> stop helping me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I, I saw, I don't remember if it was on like Dyson Saul or if like people were talking about it on discord, but like, I remember there being some like, like questions raised about like what those people were doing there. If they were supposed to be like part of some like ritual or, you know what, but like, like a lot of things in book five is just like the simplest explanation is, is really all that, uh, all that it was. It's, you know, Nessie is a Ravener. Ravener's whole thing is instead of, spells per day they have like basically a mana pool that is like soul power 
So their horde is essentially souls. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't a lot of people, but he had a few people just kind of like at the ready. And like the whole reason they were there is if he needed to replenish his soul ward, he could just like they had five hit dice each. Like it was nothing for him to kill them, but it was 15 soul points worth of captives that at some point he could just be like, you know, AOE effect. That's exactly what he did uh, with the uh, horde wilting spell, just targeting them and damages you guys and then also kills those guys. And in the process, getting extra uh, soul points back. Actually, on the topic of Nessie, uh, that was another thing I remember being discussed. And it's like Nessie being there was kind of pointless. So like Tarbafon is like, after 10,000 years, I'm free. Time to conquer Galarian. And Nessie go over to Zopadl to go check out the Kumara tree uh, because I want more shards for my Radiant Fire. And I know that the shards came from the Shield of Aridin, which was grown from the Kumara tree. Um, so Nessie shows up and he's like, time to, you know, time to make Master proud. And the Kumara tree's dead. Like that was, that was what, like Tarmaphon was unaware of that. Uh, and Nessie is a very powerful dragon uh, in terms of being able to fix a god tree, uh, not very qualified. And so kind of like, as far as like the background of the book is concerned, Nessie is just kind of there determined to return home with, you know, mission accomplished. But like, meanwhile, he like, he's just like, the tree is dead. I have to figure out how to like reactivate it mm-hmm. so I can, so I can go home a hero. There wasn't any really ever really any way to communicate to the PCs, but there was at one point uh, where Umbarno actually had a correspondence with Nessie where uh, Umbarno, they just kind of, I think they just kind of had an understanding because like Umbarno was like, oh yeah, I want to revive this tree too. You're a big, powerful dragon full of magic. Like maybe you can help me. Um, and he just kind of, I think he just kind of like lent Nessie some Kumaru tree knowledge. Um, I, th- I think I want to say that like Nessie like gave him something in return, but I, nothing's really coming to mind. But yeah, that, that's just kind of goes back to how like a lot of things in this book just like don't really connect that well. But actually, like even like even more so, um, as written, making more shards is never even part of the book. I added that. Yeah. Basically, by like by the book, Tarbafon said, like the radiant fire, like he knew that the radiant fire came from the shield of Aridin. And the Shield of Aridin was grown from the Kumaru tree. But, like, that was kind of the end of that thought. So he was just like, go learn more about the Kumaru tree and report back. And Nessie, you know, he goes and he's like, oh, no, it's dead. I need to figure out how to reactivate it so I can learn about it. And it's like, what, like, the original reason for the PCs being sent to Zopadl, like, is kind of like a nothing burger. But, like, they eventually, like, 
there eventually becomes a very good reason to stay, which is you can get your O-balls flipped. So like it kind of like like leapfrogs in that sense. So it's kind of like it kind of narratively like stays mm-hmm. on point, I guess. Uh, but yeah, uh, it just it didn't feel like enough to me. So I was like, I feel like that's like a perfectly legitimate like conclusion for like Tarbafon's reasoning for sending Nessie to Yoli's Pond. Like, I've only got so many shards left. Maybe like let like go figure out how to make more so I can have more shards. Yeah, and and he wouldn't really have any way of knowing that the Kumaru tree was dead. Yeah, all the big players, like, they were all completely in the dark about the Kamara tree. Harmafon didn't know it was dead. Nessie didn't know it was dead. Arazni didn't know it was dead. Uh, they just knew about it, knew it was important, and knew that they wanted their guys to get there and figure it out before the other guys' guys. All right, um, let's see. Let's jump right to favorite character moment. All right. Um, I'll start with this because we already kind of touched on it, but it's for me, it, it has to be, um, t- you know, Teoblith actually getting to say goodbye. Like, it is just, like I said before, the, it's the nature of the game. Like, when you have a character that dies, it is always going to be sudden. And even in this case, it was sudden. He just happened to be inhabiting something else's body at the time. So he had some time to at least go out on his own terms knowing he was going out anyway. Cause I remember like between sessions, like we were kind of doing some kind of desperate, you know, back of the envelope type of math. Like if we do this, he can last this long. And then like it, it no matter what we thought up, there was just nothing that ended up with Teoblith living. Like no matter what, like we could delay it for, a matter of minutes but like he was going to die so it was just a matter of giving him a send-off now if like on on that notion of being able to say goodbye and that is certainly i uh totally uh get where you're coming from or like that's your favorite character moment it's like that really was like a unique moment for you uh with like our style of gameplay that said if like if we wanted to try to start like shifting in how we did character deaths we could like try to start incorporating a like like occasionally during a big fight like where it like really feels deserved i'll be like why don't you describe how you kill nessie or like you know insert monster and was like yeah and like so instead of me just being like and the monster's dead like You'll get an opportunity to be like, I, you know, flourish my sword and I spin around and I juke to the left and I like drive it right up through their skull. Like, you know, whatever. Uh, we could start to incorporate that for PCs who are going to die. Be like, all right, well, this amount of damage kills you. Would you like to describe that process? And if the player wanted to, were so inclined to, they could describe a a way that that character dies that enables them to get some sort of a goodbye, even if it is like a brief thing before, like they just like, they see the blade coming, they know they can't dodge it. And they just like, they turn lock eyes with their nearest ally and be like, you know, it was a good fight, you know, whatever. And then they're. So when at, when I've died, Alex has like this delivery where 
he'll just be like, you die. <laughs> and it always, it always gets me. It always just makes it feel like, whoa. So I don't get that chance. I like both ways. You know what I mean? Like being told by the GM, you die is like, huh. So that's it then. We've, we've decided it. And it's very final. <laughs> you decided it, you jerk. I'm so sad <laughs> and mad. And I've got all these emotions and I can't express any of them because, as you said, I'm dead. <laughs> yeah. So while I, while I do, uh, you know, appreciate that there could be some RP and, and storytelling and character development in the last final breath, I gotta say, nothing has hurt me more than Alex saying you die. I, there's definitely a place for that. <laughs> I'm getting I'm getting the inference that you like the pain though. Well, it's just so impactful, you know what I mean? It's it's not like you're about to die, uh so like, you know, say your last words. It's like it's like that final destination shit where you're you're lifting weights at the gym and then the the weights come down on your head and you're just lights out. Boom. <laughs> All right. Well, Joe likes it when I step on him. Okay. So <laughs> I don't oh. <laughs> like dying. It's just like you, the the drama you're able to inject on top of that. No, I, is is yeah. very. Uh, I totally get it. Yeah, it's you know it's for the same reason why you know I like horror movies. Like because they they make you feel bad. Like that's. It's it's not it's not a good feeling to be scared. It's yeah. a bad feeling. It's it's very instinctually something that we want to avoid. But I enjoy that that twist. That like oh man, like my skin is crawling right now. This is horrifying. I love it. Yeah, yeah. It's a very memorable moment for sure. I'm gonna go next for favorite character moment when you guys. Took down Nessie. Uh, his gold plating dissolved and turned into oh, that Parmaphon. that was going to be mine. <laughs> Bullshit. Uh, this is something that I added. Because, uh, like, again, like, this this book was a nice breather, but I feel like it was just too much of a breather. And this is just another step that I took to just try to keep, like, the main story, like, there. So I was like, like the gold plating's there and it's, it's, I, I broke down the description of it, like told everybody what it does, uh, to improve upon Nessie. Uh, I left out the last sentence cause it just wasn't part of the benefits, but the last sentence is if the gold plating is removed, it crumbles into dust. So like, that's already part of it. So I was like, hell, like maybe the gold plating is some sort of. Uh, like contingent scrying focus for Tarbafon, and like as soon as Nessie dies, it just activates, and whatever Tarbafon's doing, he knows that his servant Nessie has been slain. Uh, so it was a cool, it was a cool moment. It was a nice, like, I don't want to use the word like breather, but like after that really intense fight, it was just this like talking scene mm, mm-hmm. uh and it was also like you guys had talked to his phylactery and that was a intense moment as well but like this was your first uh conversation 
uh, your first words exchanged with Tarbafon, like that's, after five books, is the pick. first time you guys actually spoke to him. And otherwise, like it wasn't going to happen until well into book six. Uh, so it just felt like a good opportunity to get on top of that and kind of lay those seeds. Um, and I was just really, this is, so this is like my favorite moment. Cause like I was personally just really satisfied with how that whole interaction went. Cause like cool things were said on both sides. It was a good back and forth. It was mostly between Uhtred and Tarbafon, but like everybody said something. I think Thalias was mostly quiet, but like, uh, Tarbafon's like this, you know, fantastic bastard. That is like just larger than life. He's super confident. Uh, he's he's super old and witty and like just always like he's just I feel like he's just always got to quip because he's just been around for so long. Like he just you just kind of like learn that like that sharpness to social interactions. Uh, but like and that that's always like really cool when you implement it into a story. But like in terms of role playing, especially in a game like Pathfinder. It doesn't like it can fall flat really easily, especially when like a player says something really unexpected, and that happens all the time. Yeah, like uh, you guys definitely said a few things that I wasn't expecting that I wasn't expecting you to say, but like I feel like I was still able to run with it in a way where Tarbafon kept that like confident, menacing air, and like there was never a point where I felt like the 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 gravitas of that moment of his like presence ever really like deflated from the moment. And that was what I was afraid of happening. So I was just really, I was really happy with the end result of that conversation. And even before, like a lot of times, like we'll have like a back and forth with NPCs and I'll be like, I just, I felt like that was just really awkward and stunted, but like Matt will edit it. And in the final version in the episode that you guys get to listen to it sounds good but like in the moment it might be a little bit more uh a little more awkward but like even in the moment even while we were recording like it just really felt good so nick what what did you have to say about that i mean i agree with everything you said but i do think for in terms of character moment, the most important thing of that encounter, like like all of everything you said was kind of cherries on top, but like at least for Uhtred, kind of at least back to the beginning of book three, understanding like Tarbafan is like the ultimate thing out there that we're gonna might have to deal with. So having that first chance to like speak directly to him felt like when you're in a race with somebody and you finally start to pull up to the point where like you know they know you're there that felt like a big character moment like we've been chasing 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 and like here we go we're getting close yeah like like, all right i'll i'll deign to acknowledge you right that is also true um and yeah i just i really feel like uh yeah, in terms of the co- the conversation, like beyond it just like being smooth and organic, uh, I really like the the stakes that we were left with. Like, this is now like y- you can you can you know debate back and forth. Was Tarbafon like 
just kind of pulling your leg, making you seem like you didn't matter? Or did he know you existed the whole time? Like, who's to say? But, like, there's no doubt now that he he's 100% aware of you. And, like, he, like, he's acknowledged, like, you're worth paying attention to. And I'm going to look out for you. It kind of, like, brings a whole new scope to the AP where like you guys were just kind of like in a lot of books you're just like chasing your tails or you're just like scrambling to like get to safety you're just like you're just reacting to stuff and just hoping that you can uh make the best out of the situation but like this is the first time where it's like that's like that's the end of the of the line like you you're looking at the finish line the finish line's looking back at you and it really like it puts it it kind of puts uh, the whole thing in in like a new light. Uh, all right, who else wanted to uh, talk about a character moment? Um, for the most part, uh, I think my favorite part is probably the ones that we already mentioned. I, I'm more of a comedy guy, so the like the idea of just going into somebody's kitchen, especially Rogar's kitchen, uh, with uh, the undead god Razni, uh, was probably the top tier. Well, that was back in book four. Oh, was that? Yeah, but like you, so you did teleport into Rogar's kitchen, though. Yeah, I, all right. Yeah, <laughs> anytime that we teleported into Rogar's kitchen, that was always uh, fantastic. Uh, except the fact that we had to deliver such devastating news. Potentially devastating news. I have a, I think I have a character moment that I really liked with our genus, and it was in the, like, during the out-of-body um, experience when we were getting, like, our ovals flipped. Was that, hold up, was that book, was that in this book? What? The ovals uh, Are getting our yeah, that was the last episode. Oh, yeah, then, yeah, no, that, 100%. I thought that was the next episode. I thought that was the <laughs> first episode. I was like, I'm not going to touch that. Uh, but 1,000%, yes, that. Talking to Leanthari? Yes. I was going to say that originally. I was just like, oh, wait a minute. Don't think I can. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to spoil the, the following book. <laughs> We're professionals, goddammit. <laughs> um, I do feel like we shouldn't go too far without at least uh, giving an honorable mention to the uh, the visit with Devoth. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was brief, though. It was brief, but it was brief. And it was <laughs> like right smack dab in the middle of like the <laughs> lull of the lull book. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess kind of easy to forget about that as 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 fun as it was yeah it was just that was uh it was definitely a bit strange for for me because like for for those of you listening um when we did that scene like i was just being valbar alex did all of the devoth stuff and then i came back later and just recorded all of the lines that Alex said in Devoth's voice with some minor alterations for both length and I thought comedy. So, uh, and it was definitely, uh, 
for the better. I mean, I, I, I feel like I did a decent job of role-playing DeVos, but uh, no one no one role-plays DeVos like Matt, so. <laughs> no one role-plays <laughs> like Matt. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it just seemed like... Uh, we we were doing an international shopping spree anyway, and it just seemed like a good way to, uh, to get like a little cameo from a past AP in there. It almost felt like a crime if we didn't get a Devoth cameo in that situation. Yeah, pretty much. Now, on our Discord server, there is a now concluded, uh, play by post campaign, uh, where. The group was uh, running Jade Regent and uh, GM'd by Toast of Dyson Salt fame. And in that campaign, uh, there were some crossovers to our campaigns. I know, uh, I think a Razni made an appearance. There was a, like, they, they did like a whole, like, uh, tournament arc and uh, our. Tyrant's Grasp group did like PvP against their uh, Jade Region group. Uh, Devoth made an appearance. Uh, and I guess we've been getting some flack that the group never went to Minkai and saw the Jade Region group during the international shopping spree. <laughs> I'm sorry. Look, I if, if there was an audio version of that play-by-post, I'd be following along no problem but i just can't, like i don't have the time to read a whole play by post campaign as much as i would like to and i couldn't justify uh i i i could it w- it would have literally been all right you guys go to minkai minkai and oh you see the jade regent group from toast's play by post campaign they wave <laughs> you guys buy your shit. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, well, I I'm imagine, sorry. I, I I imagine a brief conversation with like Empress Amiko would have been probably the extent of it. And maybe it, I don't know who that is. She's <laughs> she's an problem. N- she's an NPC that starts in Sandpoint. You meet her in Book One of Rise of the Rune Lords, and she ends up being oh, okay. like the main NPC. Like all of Jade Regent is basically a big escort quest. You're escorting Amiko to. Minkai. I did, I kind of knew, I knew that that was like the framing device, I didn't know that was the whole AP. Uh, but, yeah. So, I, I I would have loved to have that be another crossover, but like, I just really, I, I just, I, didn't, I don't know anybody. I, I wish I could just sit down and like, read through that whole thing, because it's Pathfinder AP that I've always wanted to play through probably will never get the opportunity to would have been the next best thing and everybody playing in it is super cool and i would have loved to watch it uh so yeah just make me feel worse uh joe did you uh you get your uh your thought on your character moment um yeah it's sort of character development though i don't know if i'm trying to think uh i what i was gonna say was uh that basically utrid doing Uhtred stuff has been highly entertaining in book five. I think, I think he's done a, just an awesome job of doing that whole, uh, keeper of the light, refinding himself and, uh, being the man. 
and embracing the title. Like he has the whole glowing cloak and everything now too. Yeah. <clears throat> Especially from yeah, like when we've gone shopping and had interactions with uh, you know, a whole slew of these characters. I feel like Utrid is uh Utrid's the character I wish I was. <laughs> And like all the moments that I'm trying to think of like a specific moment with Uhtred because there, there's been so many that have sort of, you know, all all come together as like this really powerful character development. And I'm sure I like, I'm sure I uh, could think of one, but I, like one defining one. I'm, I'm in a bit of a brain fog at, at the moment though. <laughs> it, it's funny that you say uh, Uhtred is the character you want to be. Because the Lias is, like, who I think is the most, like, best character. Like, pure-hearted, like, That's the, so a funny. better embodiment of good. It's like, it's like, Uhtred is, uh, yeah, that is funny. Uhtred's, like, like whenever, whenever there's someone who's interacting with the group, Uhtred's like, uh, don't worry, guys, I've got, I know what's going on, I've got this. I've got the plan. I've got the capabilities. I've got the team. Like we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make this uh, make this happen. And he's got the voice to boot with it. And so I always feel changed when our genus attacked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, I mean, our genus has been fine. Tiablith was usually the instigator, but he's not there anymore. Fair. I guess it depends on if you're talking about a, a combat or an. Uh, Social moment. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> oh my god, Z- Zeno just nailed it in the chat. Thelias desires the competence. Uhtred wishes for the heart. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if Nick meant to imply that like th- like Uhtred looks at Thelias and goes, "That's who I wish I could be," but like that like that kind of felt like that was that dynamic when you two were talking about it just now, like. Like Thelias looks up to Utrid for all these reasons, but like Utrid uh, kind of envies Thelias for all of those reasons. I I would say not envy, but that Utrid looks up to Thelias in that way. Like I look Elksy aside, like Thelias just feels like the moral compass the whole time to the point where like even when you kill him. He finds a way to come back, right? And <laughs> yeah. I, I think Uhtred's always kind of been like, you know, if if we were getting really off the rails, like, the Lias would be the one to steer us back, like. Yeah, that's something that was an automator just said, is the Lias is the only conscience Uhtred has left. Oh my god. Ooh. No, I think that's definitely going way too far, though. Uhtred's not, like, maniacal. Or, like, a bad person that's, like, hurting people or even sacrificing people to, like, get to his goal. I don't know. Burying that one person underneath a tower of bodies in a closet. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Well, and that wasn't just Uhtred either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you guys helped. Who were the accomplices? Oh, Teoblith actively encouraged it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, when we had the at a body experience with Rossler. Rossler was like, see, you're just like me. But the one big difference is Uhtred's never really sacrificed people for the greater good. I guess 
I guess a lot of that depends on like what you consider sacrifice and what you consider the greater good. Like I know that you don't consider uh like when when Uchir was like, Oh fuck this and attacked those two guards that showed up, uh like something like this tragic uh sacrifice for the greater good, like in the same way that like Roslar binding Arasni to go kill Tarbafan was and like obviously completely different stakes. Um but I feel like it's just smaller stakes, but kind of like the same idea of like I'm like you're not what I'm here for, but you're in my way. So I'm gonna take the shortest distance to solving this problem, and that is just killing you so I can go come accomplish my goal. Like the fact that you're in my way, I really don't care why, but here you are. So sucks to suck. You got to die. Yeah. But that's a far like, jump to, he has no conscious left. Like even in that example, Uchi was the one that opened the bunk room, saw a bunch of guards or whatever. And was just like, whoops, shut the door. We don't need to like go in there and you're in my way. Yeah, I I wouldn't say he's got no conscience left, but I think his capacity to just kind of like excuse any wrongdoings as well, you know, I had to do it because of this has like really blown up in the last book or two. Like obviously book 4 didn't give you a lot of opportunities to like do the right thing quote unquote besides like the big final confrontation with uh althun's army yeah and just kind of to add to that too like definitely not like tuning my own horn here but i do think a lot of that not a lot but a good amount of that comes from just teobleth's influence his very like practical you know evil aligned you know, mindset. And I really think it got to a point where Uhtred kind of had like that angel and devil on his shoulder with Teoblith and like Thalias. I think that's a good point, Matt. Yeah. Teoblith, you know, he was a dynamic changer. Cause he, what do you think Teoblith? And it's just like, ah, okay. Kick the baby. <laughs> so that's what you think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, Zeno and Automator just had a couple good uh, points. Uh, Zeno says it's it's more a duty bound apathy rather than cartoonish evil. Or Automa- Automator uses the term cartoonish evil. Then Automator said he doesn't kill for no reason, but he's not trying very hard not to. Uh, which you know I I think is you know objectively true. And I don't th- I'm not going to say Utrid is now evil for killing two guards at the Blue Gardens of Talil, because that's that would be hyperbolic, to say the least. Um, especially considering, like I said earlier in this retrospective, like this group has gone through so many situations where like just striking first and not worrying about is this like is this a false flag situation or is this actually dangerous and just being like we better just get the jump on this person before shit goes sideways like that has possibly saved your lives potentially a couple times like utrid utrid's justified 
historically speaking, in just jumping right to combat. But I feel like that's still, like, you can't ignore the fact that that behavior has now bled into killing uh, people who are objectively not evil, who are just kind of an inconvenience. And I think Uhtred's lack of uh, regret at that outcome speaks louder than the fact that he made the action in the first place. And a lot of it is just like, all right, well, you know, how many people have died on this journey? Like, let's move on. I don't need to waste tears on these two guys I don't know. Um, But I think it's worth, I, I still think it's worth acknowledging. I'm not saying it didn't play any part. I just think you guys are trying to have it be more than what it was for him. Yeah. I think the fact that you're saying there's less to it than that is what's making it more to it than that. Does that make sense? I guess. But anyway, um, one thing I wanted to talk about uh, that I didn't really put on the docket, I guess, was the the flipped oballs you guys uh are currently operating under the expectation that in order to save the day you have to die in a way where in the world of pathfinder it's permanent death it's like in real life it would just be dead like like no special circumstances behind it like yeah you die there's no coming back from it. But in Pathfinder, there's a million and one ways to bring somebody back to life and they're fine. But you have to die in a way where your characters are just erased from existence and there's no way to bring them back. Obviously, like your characters came to the decision of it's it's worth it. We're going to do it. And, you know, we've accepted that and we're moving on. But I'm curious to hear everybody's thoughts from just an, like an, an outsider's like an objective point of view of what you think about that in a game like Pathfinder in like a campaign for having an ending like that because Tyrant's Grasp is one of the most polarized APs uh, and it's because of that because there are a lot of people who found out that that was the ending and were just like hard pass. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't like that ending. In fact, I hate it. I never want to play a campaign where my character has to die and cannot come back to life. As someone who's died a bunch, yeah, <laughs> I I have that opinion. I want to I want to keep playing. I want to have my guy. I want to survive. I don't want to die in lights out. Yeah, from like like Joe's speaking from like Thalias's perspective, I guess, but like I guess just as players, uh, I'm curious to to know like what your thoughts are on like, you know, instead of like your typical, you guys defeat the final bad guy, you get the big treasure, you get the big reward, and that's the end of the story. Uh, you 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 know live happily ever after, possibly with future adventures down the pipe. Uh, the Elias but... and Joe, the player, share. <laughs> share the same outlook all right fair enough <laughs> i want yeah i want uh the uh devoth ending 
that's the ending. Yeah. You know, you're the king. You're the best. Yeah. Hooray, I we think, did it. Yeah, I think for my aspect, I mean, I, I make no secret of the fact that I am, I just like creating these characters. I always have like, several backup characters in mind at all times for whatever character I'm playing and like so to me the idea of the character just being gone at the end of an AP like that doesn't really matter to me I guess like I really enjoy all of the characters I've played through this AP but once it's done I know I'm not gonna play Valbar or Rogiar uh, like again it was like it was kind of nice giving Devoth a cameo but we could do that with like references to these guys with like statues and naming towns after them or something we don't need to be able to revisit these characters as players again so I'm personally fine with their story ending at the end of this AP Thalias will live forever. <laughs> he can't be killed. He's been killed three times. There can't be a final. I'm largely in the same camp as Matt. Uh, like, no matter what, I'm never going to... And like, Obviously, I don't have a player in this campaign, but if I... I don't have a character in this campaign, but if, if, I, if I did, like, it would be like any other campaign. When the campaign was over, like, that character is essentially dead, like retired, you know, whatever, however you want to label it. I'm never going to roll another die as that character again. Their story's over. So it just kind of comes down to, was it a good story? And I don't know if you guys have heard of this kind of like indie film, uh, Avengers Endgame, <laughs> but it's got one of the saddest but most badass and memorable uh, conclusions to a character's story with Iron Man. Like, he fucking... Spoilers, but Iron Man dies at the end of the movie uh, by using all the Infinity Stones to snap Thanos into dust. And he says the line. He says, I am Iron Man. And then he snaps and then everybody gets a tearful goodbye and then they have a funeral and it's beautiful. And then his daughter wants cheeseburgers and it's just, it makes me cry. And it's such a good end for that character's story. And the fact that they don't, uh, like he's not like the king of the world and can just kind of retire as this hero who's done a good job like that doesn't lessen that story in fact i feel like it the story is stronger the way it is told uh it's just a very satisfying conclusion and i guess from like as putting it into the context of playing a game i guess you could there's a slightly different relationship you have with your character versus that character on the TV screen, Tony Stark, and watching that character, Tony Stark, die would ha- come with like a different set of feelings and emotions as watching your character die. So I guess I get that too. But I guess for me, ultimately, it's just what, like, as long as my character's story was 
good. Like I'm, I'm personally like, okay with having a scripted death for their end. Elias and Randolph retire to a beach and, uh, their power dynamic is 50 50 and uh, everything is good in their life. That's how, that's how his story ends. Not lights out forever. <laughs> Actually on that note, I mean, we kind of like, did we see the end of Randolph with that scythe moment? Like is his spirit officially just gone and moved oh, on? Yeah. Now? Yeah. What the hell, Alex? Yeah. The freaking yeah, scythe. I know, right? What the hell, Joe? Turn your volume down. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was, I kind of kept it a little nebulous on purpose, but the, in like my head canon is, uh, Randolph's spirit was fully retired to the great beyond when you guys destroyed his ghost in Gallowspire. Keisha Keisha's little psychopomp maneuver that kind of infused part of Thalias's essence into the scythe that also repaired the scythe that didn't lock a piece of Thalias's soul into the scythe. It kind of just left a, like an echo in it. Okay. But, but when, uh, when the group found themselves in their, you know, their, their hour of need, Thalias's you know, spiritual connection with Randolph, like even though Randolph was fully in the great beyond like that tethers it's it's not fully gone and when you know he like really felt like he he needed that extra push that echo kind of lined up with the spiritual resonance that was already there and it manifested this echo of the of Randolph so like really Randolph wasn't actually there he didn't like return from the great beyond or right, like right. get a hold of Thalias through the planar veil. It was just this like transcendence that Thalias felt. And through that was just this pocket of magical potential that he unlocked through his own emotions and connection with the memory of Randolph. And it created that effect in exchange for the scythe blowing up. Okay. Um actually in that you just kind of answered Casual Chaos's third question which was uh you know in Gallowspire if an undead is killed will it come back the same way a living creature does within 24 hours? Basically is Randolph's spirit still trapped there? And you already kind of answered that so no it is not it like once you kill it in Gallowspire it moves on. Yes. Uh the Coming back within 24 hours was only, that only pertained to living creatures. Uh, if it pertained to undead, that would have been busted as hell, even for Gallowspire. <laughs> and that's saying something. Yeah. Um, Nick, did you have any thoughts on the, like, the scripted death way to end a campaign? I'm more in the camp of you and Matt. Like, I don't mind things just having an end. Like, maybe that's because, like, personally, I don't believe in an afterlife. So, like, I like the idea of a story just being closed. Yeah, it definitely does add weight to it, though, because, like, Galarian is a world where there is an afterlife and you know what the afterlife is. As like, a PC, it's, it's not a matter absolutely. of faith, but yeah. 
But like me as the player, I it, I it really wasn't an issue from my standpoint as playing whether we were like and we win and that's the end and it's like we win and you die and that's the end. Okay. Uh that's all good. I I was I was genuinely uh interested in hearing everybody's thoughts cuz like if you go on the Paizo forums to the 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 book the book 5 thread of the Tyrant's Grasp channel uh there are some unkind words about this campaign by quite a lot of people who just they're like we have to die that's stupid i'm not i apparently i'm not playing this ap after all uh and i personally just didn't really get it like it's like i like what why but like I mean, obviously, there's something to it. A lot of people felt very strongly about it. So. Yeah, I just don't get that. Like, were, were you bringing the character back after for something? Like, I don't get <laughs> it. Yeah, that certainly wouldn't stop me from playing the campaign, obviously. But also, like, yeah. I totally get it. <laughs> Solidarity with you guys. Play the campaign. It's fun. But also, yeah, it's extremely rude of you. I think a, <laughs> I think a big thing... Uh, was like another factor to this is like it's not a like you're not also definitely destroying Tarbafon with it, right? Like, yeah, that's... I think <laughs> I <laughs> I think that's like because like with Avengers Endgame, like Tony Stark definitively he turns Thanos to dust. He's gone, gone forever, uh, until the producers decide to bring Josh Brolin back, uh, but. Hey, we're getting another Deadpool movie. He could come back as Cable. He could. He could. And, I mean, the multiverse is real. He could just come back from another timeline. It's, <laughs> anything's possible. But, like, yeah. It, the Obviously, like, th- th- what's been discussed in terms of what's going to happen once, once Tarbaphon uses the Radiant Fire on you guys, uh, it's not definitive what will happen to Tarbaphon. Uh, and... Now there are some uh, pe- people listening who know the answer to that. Uh, I may have tweaked what is known by the PCs, and also once we find out what happens, like that may be slightly different from how it goes down in the AP as written. And I'm just gonna kind of—I don't want to like really go farther into it because it's like, like. Endgame stuff. I don't want to like right. That's spoilery stuff that we haven't gotten yeah. to. Yeah, but yeah, like a lot of people were very upset because it's like, you know, I, I my character gets blown up. Like I'm fine with the sacrifice ending, but why can't I just definitely also destroy Tarbaphon? Right, and from that aspect, I can understand that argument a bit more than just. What do you mean my character's gone? Like, I can definitely understand the my character's gone and we didn't even win. Like, what is this? But I, I, st- I still hold to that uh, as long as it tells a good story, I think it's all good. Now, if let's just let's just uh, look at the possibility of like he just gets destroyed. He gets, uh, you know, re- reconstituted at his phylactery and then he's able to continue on doing Tarbaphon things, but he no longer has Radiant Fire. Uh, like, that was, like, the... At the very least, it'll do this possibility. Uh, if that's what happens, I guess you just need to make sure that you're still telling a good story 
with that being the ending. And that being the ending could turn a good story into a bad story, depending on other factors of the story. So like for me, I think it I think a lot of the final impressions of this AP kinda have to come down to the GM and like how much how much work is he willing to do to make sure that his players are truly satisfied with the with the story that they walk away from after this happens. So, I mean, I guess we'll have to see. I do think part of it too is just the overall construction of this AP. Like from what the, I don't even remember exactly when we find out, like I know the kind of like the, the background of the book is, you know, we're, you know, the background of the AP, like in the player's guide, it tells you that like, yeah, you're going after Tarbefon, but like, as PCs, I don't think we learn that. Do we learn that in the Boneyard in book one? I don't think we even hear anything about Tarbefon until book two. Yeah, I mean, the whispering the whispering tyrant's involvement in any of this was only kind of hinted at in Keisha Keisha's Harrow reading, which was added by me. So by the books... If the PCs are just completely ignorant, like say they invest nothing in knowledges of any kind, they don't know who any they, they don't know who Roslar is, they don't know what they're like, they're just bubbling around the boneyard, they don't know anything. They don't learn that the whispering way was even like part of this, and by extension, possibly also Tarbafon, until they run into their first whispering way cultists in Roslar's coffer. Okay, but like, yeah, but my point is like from that point on, we know that Tarbafon is the ultimate goal, like stopping him is the ultimate goal. And it just feels like, well, maybe not from that point, but it just even looking back from here, it's a retrospective. Like it's it feels like (laughs) the entire AP is basically just a series of events to trigger level ups for the players until they are at a level that is worthy enough to fight the whispering tyrant in a sense yeah but i feel like you can you can kind of contextualize a lot of ap's to kind of be framed like that i kind of look at it as the first three books are designed to emotionally invest the players enough where sacrifice like having a planned sacrifice is worth it to them because like book one they know that roslar's coffer got destroyed they have to they have to watch the the entire town move on as uh petitioners and after convincing their friends and family you're dead you have to move on uh and then after they're out of the boneyard they have to kind of sift through the bones of their own town and piece together who's responsible for this. Learn that it's the Whispering Way, possibly even Tarbafan. Go to Vigil, try to convince the authorities of what happened and get them prepared for the possibility of it happening again. Ultimately fail at that and have to deal with Book 2 all over again, but with Vigil. So... Like, yes, that whole time you're leveling up, getting to the point where you're strong enough to, like, actually uh, have agency against the, like, any, like, actual movers and shakers of the Whispering Way. 
but I think the other what's going on at the same time is like you're getting emotionally prepped to have your characters be like, you know what? Like it's worth it to sacrifice myself for this cause. I think without that, those first three books, it wouldn't really make sense for the PCs to be like, yeah, I'll totally stop existing for all time to make this (laughs) one asshole. I, uh, yes. Be inconvenienced. Exactly. I, I feel that a hundred percent. Although there is the saving everyone else in the world that sort of yeah um like obviously there and there's always like the old like guardians of the galaxy standby i'm using a lot of marvel references today but like <laughs> where like they're like we got to destroy ronin or we got to stop him and he's like he's so powerful it's a suicide mission why would we even want to do that like because he's going to destroy the galaxy yeah well why should i care like why do, like why do you suddenly want to save the galaxy because i'm one of the idiots who lives here because it's like like yeah, like obviously you want to stop him from destroying everybody in the world because you're one of everybody in the world. Uh but like that said, like a lot of a lot of PCs who aren't emotionally invested in this would be like, "All right, well either way I'm going to die. So why should I put myself through all of that?" Like in scenario A, he kills everybody in the world, including me. In scenario B, he doesn't do that, but I still die, and now there's no trace of me ever again. Uh, but like, and I also need to like claw my way through this terrible campaign of death and destruction. Like, not every PC would make that decision. I feel like without going through that emotional turmoil. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. I don't. That's what. Good. How? What would? What would Tia Blith have done in that situation? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know um yeah i don't know because i mean he's he had his own motivations and i will go over this more in the character growth segment later on but like he had his own motivations beyond just historical curiosity to be wanting to fight against Tarbefan. but i'm not sure how much his motivations would have driven him to make that sacrifice it's tough because like especially get it like being at the level that Tiablith is at like like let's say like okay if i don't do this all of galarian dies that's bad but there's an entire multiverse out there i can just move myself to like i don't know like a- axiom the lawful neutral i think that's the right name for it lawful neutral plane of cities and just i can just live there i can just live in these like this city of cities that makes absalom look like a hamlet uh and tarbafon will probably never get there until this case it would have been uh probably despotter one of the levels of hell that's where he would have assumed he'd end up yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's once once you get to that high of a level, like losing a planet is obviously always going to be bad. But like, it's not necessarily like I have to I have to sacrifice myself. Otherwise, everybody otherwise I'll die anyway, and so will everybody else. Like, you could just kind of Rick and Morty it into another plane. Like, obviously, you're not gonna like go to another Galarian. Doesn't work like that. But yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I I. I I would have liked to 
to see Teoblitz's reaction to that. Yeah, because like I specifically built Valbar and his backstory with that motivation of like that willingness to do whatever was necessary. Like that was that was kind of built into his character when I was designing it. And I didn't even think about it till just now, like what Teoblith would have done in that situation. Yeah, and I even like because it was it was extra tricky for me because I I knew that that conversation was coming, and while Teoblith wasn't there from the beginning, he had still been with the group for enough time where like you know I had done everything that I could, and like the whole like everything I just said like the first three books is there specifically to get the PCs emotionally invested to sign up for this permanent permanent permadeath auto auto death suicide mission. Matt is literally about to introduce a brand new PC. How could I possibly expect him to be like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. So like I I sent him I I sent Matt an email or message on Discord or something and I was like, hey, I just like I don't want to like give anything away, but I just want to make sure that the character you're making is like super extra motivated to take out Tarbaf on at all costs. And you're like, yeah, he is. And I was like, all right, cool. Yeah. It's like, I pretty much already had that backstory written for him when I got that email. <laughs> so just made it easier for me, I guess. Also, Axis is the name of the lawful Axis. Plane. Thank you. Uh, let's do a couple more listener questions. Uh, J train one on discord asks, how happy was the party to get a break in the action and get to spend all their money for new shinies and eat good food again? Uh, yeah, I'll take this one. <laughs> <laughs> Thelias, was it not at all? No, Thelias was, uh, I feel like my character getting those three necklaces. Normally when we buy stuff, I don't really, it's like, all right. Yeah. I mean, an extra one resistance is nice or you know like maybe some cool things but those three necklaces are such a game changer for my character and like the the break in the action to feel powered up going into the next section that was a huge w for me normally i don't get those w's but that was a that was a really big one yeah i think like i've i've said it a few times now like i i think this was a much needed breather of a book, but I think it was just too much of a breather. So like I think obviously I'm not one of the players, but I I, I would say like very happy for the break, but it was almost like you know in summer when you're off school as a kid and like it feels like summer lasts forever and you like it, but then there's that harsh reality. Like I yeah. wish there were, we just had vacations throughout the year and not this one, because everything is so right. brutal for so long, and then it's like, oh, this is nice. But now, I mean, it's still... Yeah, yeah. I I felt that a lot in college, like the, that winter vacation, like the semester ends the middle of December, and then you have like a month off till January, that... <laughs> yeah. I don't know, that yeah. always felt like it was a little too long. Yeah. I will say it was weird. Like, Teoloth got to do some shopping, but his was mostly just upgrading his armor and his bow. And then Valbar didn't really have the money that everyone else did to go shopping because his shopping was character creation. So I feel like I didn't quite experience that in the same way that everyone else did in this book. 
and I'll just say now, uh, I hope everybody uh, did all the shopping they want and they got it out of their system uh, as we go into book six. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Let's do another one. Uh, Josh on Discord. All right. Uh, here's the question. Uh, have you guys said if you will be moving to 2E after this AP or continue with 1E content? We, I kind of like, I asked, I asked the guys before we started recording, like, hey, do we want to answer this or not? Uh, and we're going to answer it. Uh, we are going to stick with 1E after this campaign ends. Uh, we did have a very uh, serious back and forth on like exactly what we wanted to do and exactly why we wanted to do it. And honestly, it could have gone either way. Uh, but that's, uh, that's what we're doing, uh, for our next campaign will be a 1E campaign. We'll obviously have more information, uh, after some more time, but call us, uh, nostalgic, (laughs) stubborn, set in our ways, basic bitches, 1E, uh, purists, all, all, all the bad, all the bad labels. Go ahead and give it to us. Uh, but yeah, we're, uh, we're sticking with 1E. You're welcome. <laughs> and all the crunch that comes with it. Yes. All right. Uh, one more question. Uh, Zeno wants to know, Zeno from Discord wants to know what content was missed slash skipped. This book felt unnaturally light compared to other adventures. Um, yeah, we, we, we've touched on that a few times. This book was kind of, just kind of felt weird. Uh, so <laughs> one, the, One thing is something that was skipped was something that was initially not going to be in the book and I was going to add it, but then I ended up not including it. And like, I'm kind of glad I didn't include it because anyone who listens to Dice and Salt between episodes might uh, have heard a conspiracy or two from uh, one of the hosts regarding Mariana. And that she is secretly a bad guy, some sort of plant, or even Tarbathon himself. This obviously was never the case, is not the case. She's just a nice old lady who's bad at cooking. <laughs> There's a monster at the end in the bestiary at the end of book four of Tyrant's Grasp called an Anisi Daemon or Anisi Daemon. I'm not sure exactly how it's pronounced. Um uh the the word before daemon means like stress or anxiety so i don't know if it's anesy or anesy or what but uh uh it's i i really liked it as a monster it was really cool uh it just represented uh death by like you basically literally worrying yourself to death um and it it's like a large sized creature but it's got the compression ability because it like occupies like the space of a medium sized creature. Cause it's like just the whole point is that it's like, it's basically like the manifestation of like somebody like in the fetal position, like worrying. Um, but it's like this huge hulking creature that is occupying this much smaller space than it should be. Um, and it can like, it can like, possess 
a creature's shadow and kind of like not it doesn't like become the shadow it literally just hides in the shadow it hides in plain sight and like just nobody can see it as long as it's walking around in this person's shadow uh and i had this whole kind of b plot going where there was going to be like just something felt off about mariana she acts weird sometimes and the whole thing was she was being kind of uh terrorized by this Annecy daemon who was just there to sow chaos and like just give her a bad time like outsiders rarely evil outsiders rarely need a good reason to kind of stick around someplace that's experiencing some sort of strife and just sow chaos and eventually you guys would have started to realize like oh like there's there's something else going on here and eventually you would have had like a big showdown with the Annecy Damon uh and like it it wasn't a high enough CR to in book five be a big deal so I actually was going to make it a mythic Annecy Damon and even give it a couple uh boogeyman uh henchmen and it was gonna be like this big like fear effect based fight but uh oh Teobos Forte <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh but it just kind of like got lost in the sauce at some point i guess and it like i kind of like i never really had time to like stat the thing up and we got we're getting closer and closer to the book five and i was just kind of like i hadn't really worked out exactly like how to uh like quantify like something feels off about mary and like what would that look like in game and so it just kind of never happened uh but yeah like after the fact i'm like man that certain host whose name is lord richter (laughs) he he was just like he heard the name mariana and a switch got turned on and he was just like no fuck her in particular i'll plant drugs under her chair if i have to she's gonna be incriminated for something god help me uh i was like man if i had left that if i had left that annecy damon in there it would have all fit perfectly he would have been the prophet of dyson salt but (laughs) it just never happened now his new conspiracy theory is you did leave it in, but won't admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or yeah, or did I actually have everything lined up? And as soon as Richter was like, "There's something weird about Mary," and I was like, "You know what? Pulling the Annecy Damon <laughs> thread. It's out of here now because I want him to be wrong." Um, but yeah, that that was that was just something that didn't get put in, and it was just very funny the way everything kind of lined up. Um, I already talked about the, the great, the great Talil brawl that never happened. Uh, so speaking of, uh, the blue gardens of Talil, like there's a whole bunch of encounters you guys didn't like, you just bypass. Like, obviously we kind of went over that. Um, one of the things that's built into the book when it's, when it explains like you can, you can solve these conflicts passively. You like make these these guys require a diplomacy check or you can make a knowledge arcana or a nature check to kind of convince them that like you know your shit 
and you're convincing them that what they're doing isn't going to work. And they're being like, well, I get, I guess we'll just listen to them. Uh, for each NPC that you convince to leave, uh, the PCs, like basically the next time they go back to Yoli's Pond, that NPC, after kind of going home, clearing his head, and realizing, wow, they really, like, I was going down a dangerous path. They, I owe them. That NPC will seek them out and give give them a gift of a single magic item costing no more than some pretty decent amount of gold. Let me see if I can find it. But uh, obviously that never happened. Like, that never came into play because nobody ever went home. No NPCs went home happy uh, from there. Uh, I kind of expanded on that and I was like, hey, it's been a long time since I have made custom magic items for my PCs. So I did that and I was like, if they if they do a really good job, like I know they could, then like instead of a single magic item worth it's a uh, here it is worth twenty four thousand gold or less. Uh, so each NPC that you convinced to go home would have netted you twenty four thousand gold worth of a single item. Uh, like in like maybe like combine a couple npcs and they like work together and they're like hey that one that elf he's like he shoots uh he uses a bow and arrow like i'm gonna make something special for him that one guy he used a shovel like that's weird but i think that gives me a good idea and i kind of just made a list of custom magic items that i thought were really pretty cool uh that you guys would uh would get as like a special reward if you like really went all out and uh got enough NPCs to go home happy. Um, and how many did we kind get of, to go home happy? Uh, let me check my notes here. Um, <laughs> zero. I never felt like that was even an option. That's crazy that there was, that we could have done that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, I, I won't, I won't go through each, each item, but I, um, I want that I fucking don't, shovel. <laughs> The name of the shovel was the Kiltivator. Oh my god. Now I don't want to know about it. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um but yeah, so it's some cool uh custom magic items. Uh let's see what else I the another thing that never really uh got super explored was the Clash of Saints. Um that was just kind of the festival that was going on in the background for the first half of the book uh yeah there wasn't really a whole lot to do that you guys didn't do like most of it is just kind of dressing like while you guys are doing your thing in yoli's pond like there's a festival and this is aesthetically what the festival looks like um there's kind of like a there's a i think like three or four like actual like quote-unquote combats that you could have participated in but they were all like one-on-one combats so it wasn't like it would have involved just everybody watching one person participate in the combat which was kind of weird uh especially since the book was already so light on combats uh they were they were all like very like if you if your group had a monk or a brawler like they were is easy breezy because like each combat was like it was hand to hand 
like no weapons, no armor, because they're all like performance fights. Uh, but so yeah, for you guys, it would have been like pretty hard, pretty tough to like succeed in them. Uh, Uhtred might have prevailed just by sheer attrition uh, with his AC, his unarmored AC, even if he wouldn't have been able to lay hands on his opponent. Uh, but yeah, like you got like you guys asked about it a couple times, but nobody ever like seriously inquired like how do I participate in the Clash of Saints? So like I kind of just I was grateful for that because it like it was all just you know s- single combat thing thing. It just kind of seemed like another weird choice. Um, oh hey, I see a question from Zeno in the chat. What was up with the Luchador Bard dude who we will never see again? Uh, Bertolo. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. That was that was a a book five NPC companion I was trying to give you guys. It was the book five Yando that we ignored. <laughs> so he uh was actually like was pretty interesting. You would have like found this out organically uh if he if you like brought him with you. Um it would have been revealed that this guy's actually a psychopomp. Um what? That happens to have Bar- the Bardic performance ability built into his uh, stats. And then I think at the time you met him, he had like one additional level of Bard on top of his normal stats. And then like if you guys really befriended him and you encouraged him to go with you, he could have he could have just continued to level up in Bard levels. Um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's funny because we've we talked about Nessie a few times here and like how the his Nessie's AC was so stupid high it was just frustrating. Like would have been pretty cool if you guys had a bard who could have just been like, who wants a plus four to hit? Uh Bartolo could have done that. But yeah, it's just it's weird because like there's always the whole like balancing act of like as the GM you want your players to like have their own agency but also you want like if if there's things that they don't think of like you also kind of some gms don't want to but like i want to be like hey don't forget like this thing's on the table um and at some point like like where do you draw that line where you're just like you're basically playing for them if they're like truly that uh like negligent of what their options are. And I'm not saying that you guys are negligent, but like in this case, I feel like I kind of, I didn't, I didn't purposefully leave Bartolo out because you guys didn't think to recruit him. Uh, Cause like, I, I also kind of forgot he was like, he had like given you guys that invitation to like, anytime you uh, are looking to get into some action, go call on Bartolo. It'll be, under the bridge where he lives. Um, yeah, it was just, it was just funny because like you guys seem to like him. He, he was a, he's a fun, he had a fun personality, but like, like the very next in game day and you guys were like time to go look for trouble. Let's too bad. We don't know anybody who wants to come with us. I think for me though, it, it was like, I, I didn't really under, didn't grasp that he was like, of the ability to come with us. Like, I thought he was just kind of like, shit went haywire in the market, and he was like, being a good Samaritan, 
and I, I guess it just huh. didn't really strike me like, oh yeah, he's an option to like leave the city with us. Yeah, that was kind of where I picked it up too. Is like once we were deciding to go to the Blue Gardens, he didn't seem like an option anymore because we were going outside the city. Interesting, because I, I forget exactly what he said, but it was like something to the effect of like, you know, if you if you ever need. If you ever like, if you ever go looking for trouble, like just like and you and you need like a you need a partner, like just call on Bartolo or something, something like that. That like seemed pretty, like pretty univ, like pretty universal. Like this guy is a po- like a potential NPC ally for you, um, but like obviously it wasn't just it wasn't just Nick, it wasn't just Matt. It was both of you guys. Kind of like went like, oh well. That he must be talking about just within the city limits of Yoli's Pond. I think it was because uh, we like encountered him, and then like it was either the next day or like two days after encountering him, we were like, "Oh, time to go to the gardens." He he like wasn't around enough to like stick in my memory to think like, "Oh yeah, that guy." Yeah, right. he did just kind of like show up. Uh, and maybe it was just because the combat that he helped you guys in, like, happened to be cut so tragically short. It also wasn't that, clear like, at the onset of it, that, too, whether he was uh, helping or was he controlling the beast, right? Like, Snake Charmer style. So, like, it took a minute to realize, like, oh, he he's a good guy. I mean, I, I guess on some level I'm relieved because I know in my heart that Bartolo will always always be at Yoli's Pond, uh, living his best life, and he'll and he didn't die. You think he would have died under our watch? I don't know. Uh but yeah that that's uh that was Bartolo's uh deal. Uh just and yeah that's like that psychopomp was in the bestiary in the back of book five and I was like that's cool as hell. It's a it's a psychopomp bard. Uh so, I was like, I I want to include him. I don't know where. I don't know how, but I want to. And so I just figured, like, well, he's just kind of like he's he's blended into the the locals of Yoli's Pond. And I think I think like his big thing like that like made him like want to help you guys was he's a psychopomp. He can see your oballs. So like he might not have understood why, but he knew that you guys were special. So he wanted to, it was in his best interest to get to know you better. But I don't know. Maybe I could have made him more, uh, like he could have been like, he could have like shown up the next day and been like, Hey, so any, any action, you, any, anything you need Bartolo's help with? Oh, well, uh, let's see what else. I don't really know anything else that got missed. There are a couple encounters in Tumbaha mountain that I omitted because just from the pacing of things it was just it was so weird that you fight the tsetse needle you go into the top of tumbaha mountain you don't even necessarily encounter that ghost like you guys just happen to do a full clear of the top level and you encounter the ghost um it well, it didn't harm you anyway because you like unlike living people you apparently will give ghosts enough time to uh, come up with a, a 
a passive end to that encounter. Um, yeah, well, uh, but then I was still mad about that. Like, um, Valar wanted to take control of that thing, and I, know, like, <laughs> yeah. I made the mistake of freeing it before trying to take control. And as soon as I freed it, it just disappeared. So I didn't get the chance. <laughs> That's true. How could you possibly know that it was just going to swan dive through the floor, though? But yeah, like regardless, the ta- would the ghost take him or leave him? You go down the stairs and just Nessie. Like any other encounter in that place is going to feel weird. And you guys still fought that raw head, uh, which was a fun combat, but like ultimately just kind of felt weird. It was such a quick combat, too. I wonder what he's up to in the Maelstrom. <laughs> I think he's making the best of it. He's probably leader of some uh, some Maelstrom gang. But regardless, like, yeah, so, like, the raw head, like, it was just, like, it almost just kind of, like, let the circumstances, let me just kind of include him as, like, a random encounter because it was, like, the middle of the night you guys were sleeping. Whatever. But, like, then it came time to explore the pyramid and, like, there are a couple encounters in a couple of those rooms, but, like, one of them was just, like, I think it was, like, four CR-14 monsters and like you guys had already fought and killed Nessie CR eighteen, like it, I it just, I was just looking at the numbers, being like, these guys are like they're they're no threat to the PCs, like what's the point of like, it's gonna take more time to roll for initiative, than to like actually take care of these things, so I so I omitted those uh those those encounters, I think that's everything. I think that's everything that we that we skipped over. Uh, so we are starting to run pretty late. There were a few like more round table discussions that we haven't gotten to, uh, like the characters and like how they've changed and uh, like grown over the book. But I feel like we've more or less covered those. Like definitely with Uhtred, definitely with Elias. Yeah, we did some of that. Didn't you do a character update at one point, like recently? Yeah, I feel like I talked about we, my motivation. Well, we did a stuff. check. We did a check in a uh, couple episode, couple sessions into book six. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So, so don't worry about that. Um, but yeah, so I just kind of want to make sure we get through the rest of the listener questions before we really run out of time. Yep, let's do it. So let's see. Uh, Fulgrim from Discord asks. Uh, were there ways to get the staff in the Blue Gardens to be friendly or any way to just not wiping them all out? Uh, obviously, already talked about that. But Can uh, you go into how? Because I'm still confused about that. Sure, sure. So the fight outside didn't really have a pacifist end. The, the werewoods and the moss golem, like that was more or less like, yeah, if, 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 you, if you deign to not go through the front door and you go, I'm going to go around the side. Like you just, you get a combat. It's, it's just kind of what happens because that felt like, I think that's a, like the point that I'm thinking of really is from the beginning. It felt very hostile. Right. So yeah, that encounter was always going to be kind of uh, more or less your traditional bad guys. See you roll for initiative encounter. Cause I think at some point it was like, all right, we had that fight. Let's talk to these guys. And we were like, 
you know what? We just had that fight. <laughs> like, are we really going to start? Like, everyone's all jazzed up from the fight. We're coming in guns blazing. Like, oh, okay, now we're going to be diplomatic. Yeah, it was kind of like tragic circumstances because one single werewolf escaped from that encounter. So, like, yes. if if that hadn't happened, like, you wouldn't have walked into the building to a half dozen guns drawn at you, essentially. Yes. Um, so one one way to almost guarantee uh, you don't get attacked by anybody is to wear a Talil mask, which you guys eventually all put on, uh, one of those masks. After the initial massacre. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, so it says... Uh, Talil masks were once considered no more than useful oddities, masks with traditional floral motifs and imbued with abilities botanists found uh, situationally useful. Several Talil masks sat unused in a storeroom in the Blue Gardens of Talil facility for many years. When the children of Kumaro took over the facility, they used Talil masks to mark their allegiance to the group. So as I said before, most of the people in this building are just very focused on their work. If you walk into a room wearing a Talil mask, like they just assume that you belong. Like then there's the the obvious hurdle of like, well, I don't speak the same language as these guys, and maybe they ask me a question and I can't respond. Like the book is very generous. Like if you if you just kind of like if if they say something to you, you just kind of like shrug and leave like unless like the alarm is raised and like they have like other like contextual reasons to be suspicious of you they're just going to be like huh rude but then just go back to their work wow that's funny that it can be so different cuz that is not how it happened so then there's actually like making skill checks to uh, convince some of these people to not fight. Oh, that that reminds me. One of the things uh, on the Uhtred thing with him uh, having it together, where Elias absolutely doesn't, is he can speak to everyone. <laughs> so a lot of the times, Elias he only has like a couple languages that are never useful, and it's like people are talking a different language while he's just sitting there, like what the hell is going on <laughs> like <laughs> business is getting done by utrid you know he's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> so that that's like another another piece of that or is like the little child in the corner like what are mommy and daddy saying <laughs> i don't wah, wah, i don't wah, wah, understand wah, wah. a lot of these words and then just all of a sudden fight to the death <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> all right so uh in, so you guys hid the bodies from those two encounters in the closet of one of those laboratories. Uh, there were five laboratories all spaced out in that northern hallway. Okay. At any point in the day, two of those laboratories had uh, NPCs in there working on experiments. And it was just a roll of the dice if the one you happened to pick had NPCs in there, and it didn't. It was three of, three of the labs, so the odds were against you. Uh, 
So it just says, these botanists are more interested in their personal research than in Umbardo's crusade and are reluctant to get in a fight unless they're provoked or an alarm has already been raised. If the facility isn't on alert, the botanists are willing to enter into dialogue with the PCs, even if the PCs aren't wearing Talil masks. If the alarm has been raised, the botanists still assume anyone wearing a Talil mask is supposed to be in the facility, and they might make an offhand comment about the alert distracting them from their work. A PC who talks with a botanist and succeeds at a DC-30 Diplomacy, Knowledge Arcana, or Knowledge Nature check convinces the botanist that their skills are better served helping the people of Yoli's Pond directly instead of supporting Umbardo's hostile agenda. If a PC fails this check, the botanist considers the PCs dangerous, shouts an alarm, and attacks. Although the botanists are more likely to be encountered individually in these labs, once a combat begins with one botanist, the others from the other rooms join the fight as well. So that is one instance where uh, the fight would organically grow from other people coming from other rooms, but that is a rarity in this case. That's what that's one of the things I love about uh, you know playing Pathfinder is like the different outcomes absolutely endless. It really is like oh my god, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, you can you could have 10, 10 different groups play through the same AP. <laughs> yeah. And it, it it'll tell 10 different stories. Yeah. They'll have the same general story beats most in most cases, but like yeah, just the the minutia of like the just the the micro uh details of what happens. So there's another room uh on the second floor. Oh, this would have been interesting. Uh, it says, Not all the children of Kumaru share Umbarno's vision. Some are self-serving. These three children of Kumaru wardens, i.e. the brawlers, are taking advantage of their access to the Blue Gardens to make a profit, secretly stealing valuable plants and passing them to a contact in Yoli's Pond to sell at exorbitant prices. They were initially subtle about their thefts, but they've realized that none of the other children of Kumaru care much about the dried plants here, so they've become more overt in taking anything they think might turn a profit. When the PCs enter this room, the wardens are rummaging through the stores, emptying containers of herbs into sacks, and casually discussing the value of each. If questioned, the wardens attempt a to spin a tale about collecting the herbs for an experiment elsewhere in the facility, but they aren't very good liars. If... Their clumsy deception is brought to light, and a PC succeeds at a DC-30 diplomacy or intimidate check to insist the wardens reform their ways. The wardens decide to give up their scheme and make amends in Yoli's Pond. Alternatively, the PCs might not care about the theft. If they agree to let the wardens go with as many herbs as they can carry, the wardens leave the Blue Gardens and don't return. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So there's... There's a whole bunch of encounters like of that caliber where it's just these people just kind of doing their thing, uh, whether altruistic or not. And like in the case of the like the standoff in the hallway, maybe when Tiabla said, "Okay, I draw my i I fire an arrow at this guy," maybe I could have said, okay, pause before Tila takes that action. Someone give me a diplomacy check. Cause you guys had been doing a back and forth dialogue and that would have eventually been what I was going to ask for to see how you guys might've convinced these guys to leave or not. Um, I didn't think the conversation had gone on long enough to warrant 
a diplomacy yeah, check. And I can see where I'm going to fight this dude is. <laughs> I, oh, before you are committed to fight this dude, give me a diplomacy check. I, I can see where you would have left that out. It's like, all right, well, that's what you say. You want to fight him. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it just, I, I commend the writers for including these pacifist outs. Uh, I'm personally a little bummed that we didn't get to explore any of them because they all could have made for really cool character moments, especially with the last one I read. If you guys were just like, you know what? Take your ill-begotten goods and begone with you. And they would have been like, all right, salute. See you later. Yeah. And that like that's literally all it would have taken to bypass that encounter. <laughs> yeah, it is what it is. Like, like you said, Joe, uh, like there's just so many ways that these scenarios can get concluded. And especially the thing that we just were talking about was Bartolo didn't accompany us with at all, really. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, geez, how different it could have been. I know. All right. Uh, let's see. I think all we have left are so Josh from Discord asked uh, a lot of questions. So I think all of our questions that we have left are from uh, from him. So let's see here. Alex, what's your least favorite class and why is it whatever Matt brought to the table this session? This question gets brought up in some form or another in each retrospective. <laughs> I think I hold that my least favorite class is still the shifter because fuck pounce. <laughs> hey, Barbarian gets pounced too. It can, but it. I think you need to wait until like 12th level to get it. Maybe. I think by the end, if I had built um, Devoth to it, I think I could have given the entire group pounce with rage powers. But again, that's like a whole, like, that's a career's worth of leveling up that would have accumulated in that the shifter just gets pounce at like like level seven or something i don't remember exactly when it turns on but like and obviously you have to take the tiger but it's like the tiger's such a good form why would you why wouldn't you take it and then it gets grab with each of its natural attacks like the barbarian doesn't get that fuck the shifter and like i said before the the class i wish had gotten one last cleanup is the medium. I think the medium's pretty cool. Uh, next question. Alex is sharing really caring, especially when it comes to golems. Uh, no, it's not. Because that's not sharing. That's stealing. And that's illegal. <laughs> you wouldn't download a golem. <laughs> uh, final question. Uh, the Randolph divine favor thing. Was that something that... You had planned for this fight or an impromptu boost to give the party some help in the fight. I I knew I I knew I wanted I knew it would be cool to be able to include some Thalias Randolph moment in some capacity, even as far back as Thalias first being brought back as a reanimated medium. I didn't know when that would be able to happen. I didn't know what it would look like if it did. Uh but it was always kind of in the back of my head of like, look for a, a, an excuse to do that. Um, that said, it was 100% something, an impromptu boost that I gave to the party to uh, to help them better hit Nessie. I love the flavor on that. Say. That was so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. 
and the fact that you were thinking about old Randolph that that warms me. My only regret is that I waited to use it. Uh, I should have used it when uh, when Thalias was like like after Nessie like beat the absolute shit out of Thalias. And like both, like all three of his amulets activated, and it was just this like <laughs> yeah. humongous culmination of like damage and positive energy, just kind of like all doing a tug of war uh, with Thalias as the rope. Uh, I feel like that would have been the moment to have Randolph show up, and I ended up doing it. I think one round later, but I feel like it would have gotten the maximum narrative punch if, yeah, like in that moment when Thalias was at like in like single digits, I think, or just about with his hit points. That would have been the time to do it. All right. So I wanted, I wanted to close on uh, our, you know, final thoughts on book five in general, uh, initial impressions, lasting impressions, story of book five, the characters, the pacing, We've talked about it. We've kind of danced around it throughout this retrospective, but I guess like if anyone has like a summary of thoughts they want to get out about book five. Uh, yeah. Book five for me was a weird one, but like a welcome weird one, but then into a, what the hell is going on here? It, it was like, um, how to describe it? It's like, I did not expect it at all. And then, but now I'm in it. And but now where the fuck is this going to Okay, looking back, I enjoyed that. You know, like it it had a lot of different things that I didn't expect that were fun to deal with. And uh yeah, just the the unexpected uh, for me. So much doom and gloom into paradise, into but still fighting and then advancing story. It was interesting for sure. Yeah, like the the I think it was said before, but like it was it was a welcome breather at this point in the story, but it was a breather that went on a bit too long. I think that's a I think that's a fair summary. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much in that camp too. Like it was needed, it was just poorly executed. Nothing nothing against our our good friend Luis Loza, who took time out of his busy schedule to respond to uh a question i had on twitter uh who was the the writer of of this book uh cuz god it's 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 got to be it's got to be like complicated and frustrating to write uh an entire ap for a pathfinder uh entire book for a pathfinder ap uh and who knows how many hands are in that project uh but yeah i think i think Book five was fun in spite of itself. Uh, I loved role-playing Mariana. Yes. I loved you role-playing Mariana. (laughs) Fun fact, speaking of Luis Loza, uh, he said so on the forums that at least her physical appearance was uh, taken, was, uh, what's the word, uh, Inspired. Inspired by? Inspired by Luis Loza's grandmother. Huh. That's nice. She felt yeah. like a good grandma. Yeah. So, yeah, I had a lot of fun. It would have been a lot more funny than if she was, uh, you know, the conspiracy Perfect theory about her was true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, Grandma, uh, it's hard about fun. I loved uh, exploring Mexican cuisine. Anytime uh, the group sat down for another meal, I enjoyed that too. I I I am so uh, I am so sheltered. I know so little about Mexican food, uh, so it was just it was doubly fun for me being like being the one driving the bus on like let's explore Mexican food. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, just reading these things, like, it was like, uh, covered in mole something. And Joe's like, mole. And I was like, oh yeah, mole. Uh, <laughs> just and I only know that because Ariel's all into Mexican food. So I'm like, oh my God, like this, this useless Mexican food knowledge shining through in this one specific part. Thank you, Ariel. <laughs> Hooray. Uh, so yeah, that is, it was, I think. I think that's probably the best way I could put it. It was it was a fun book in spite of itself. Uh, it had a lot of had a lot of disjointed, weird decisions that kind of all culminated in ultimately just a weird book. I and I think I said in the book for retro retrospective, like like I really didn't know what to expect with book five. Uh, so I I think my my trepidation was. Uh, was warranted but that said uh vacation's over uh on to book six on to book six that is going to be the scariest book in so many ways Uh, i think that i have ever run that's yeah can we go back to book five (laughs) (laughs) the thing with vacations is they're either they go from like that vacation was too short to that vacation was too long to let's make this vacation permanent right and we never have to go back to the bad thing uh yeah book book six and maybe it's just because i've never like read through an adventure path book that brought the pcs to these high levels but Oh my god. The the peril that you guys are in for is noteworthy. Do you think we can diplomatize our way out of the peril? <laughs> Give it your best shot. <laughs> but that is uh it's a journey for another time. Uh so hopefully uh we'll see you all there next week when we start book six. Uh in the meantime, see ya! Right. See ya. See ya.